Hello, hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show this week. I don't want to start the mood off too bad here, but we do have some sad news. Andrew Yang, uh, who was going to be our guest this week, he was really looking forward to coming, but uh, he unfortunately got COVID-19. I think he's had for like a week, at least a week now, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just did a town hall last night. And apparently after that town hall, he was not feeling very well. Um, So we do have a a bit of a special edition, a special episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends, uh, even though Andrew's not here. I'm going to be interviewing Crystal, and she's going to be interviewing me. So I'm actually kind of looking forward to that. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, we're going to do Crystal, Kyle, and Friends without the friend. Yes, it's just, it's just, it's just Crystal, Crystal and Kyle, and Kyle today. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, in a way, we're kind of going to treat each other like... Interview subjects. If, yeah, if we were a guest. Yeah. So, you know, that's I think that's interesting and fun and unique. And I'll tell you, I've seen a number of comments that are basically like, my favorite part of the show is the intro and outro, where you and I talk. There's a lot of people who prefer that yeah. to the actual guest. Yeah. You know? Right. And no disrespect to the guests. We love them all. Right. You know? No, I'm actually excited to just have the chance to dive in with you as well and have a number of questions planned for you. Um, okay. I don't know any of them, so I don't know if that's good news <laughs> or bad news. Should I be nervous? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see where it goes. Um, your old tweets might come up. Oh, God. <laughs> that's actually my favorite t- topic, though, so it's okay. It's everyone's favorite topic. Uh, I know. How can I don't we know not how that t- How can we talk about you and not talk about your old happened. tweets? I mean, I'll never, I'll never be able to live down the fact that, like, somebody started an account for just my old tweets. And it has, like, and it has, like so many followers. <laughs> I don't even know what it's up to. Is it? It's probably flirting with 50K. I'll check it. Right? I'll okay. check it. I don't. Um, Cut that out. I don't want anybody to know the account exists. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm edit just that kidding. part out. I'm just kidding. Um, but there was a lot that happened this week. So before we get to mm-hmm. you and me interviewing each other. Indeed. Um, I mean, the big news of the week dominating certainly cable and na- mainstream news was the ongoing impeachment trial um, in the Senate trying to convict President, former President Trump, mm-hmm. this time of inciting the riots on January 6th. And first, like on the merits, and I think we may have felt a little bit differently about this. Mm-hmm. I preferred going the route of the 14th Amendment and banning Trump from office that way. That's what I support. Because it seemed very direct. Mm-hmm. But given that they decided for whatever reason not to go that path, even though I thought that path made a lot more sense, I do really support, you know, impeachment and trying to get convict him and trying to get him banned from office. And I will say that I thought the Democrats actually did a very effective job this week in making the case. Meanwhile, what we've seen of his lawyers, Trump's lawyers so far was like, I mean, it was bad. It like, was, I enjoyed really it. Really <laughs> bad. Hilariously bad. Yeah. Um, cat lawyer level. Like, they should have had the guy who had the cat filter uh, thing. Like, yeah, yeah that would have been better than what they did. Um, obviously, he's not going to get convicted. We already know what's going to happen. And I think it's a shame because I really do think it matters that he be banned from running for office again. Uh, and I know that that's an extraordinarily extreme step, right? To, to take that step and say, look, American people, even if you want to vote for this guy, we're putting that off the table. I think that is an exceptionally extreme step. But he is so damaging to politics. I mean, he just ruins both parties. He destroys the debate. He destroys any possibility of doing anything good that if that could have been accomplished, I think it would have been really positive. And by the way, you know, he's been kind of quiet right now. 
I would never count that guy out from being able to make a comeback. He's very dominant still in the Republican Party, being able to win the Republican primary. And then God only knows with a country that's so evenly divided what could happen. So those are kind of my top line thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw an article that said that when impeachment fails, not if, when, yeah. when it fails, they are going to try the 14th Amendment. So I think you and I agree that ideally that's what you sh- they, they should have done, done first that the because yeah. it actually had a chance. And when like emotions were the highest after that event, you want to kind of do it then. So right you, away. Yeah. You hook people like Romney. You know what I mean? Like you'll get a, a decent number of them. Right. You're never going to get the what do you need? 17 Republicans mm-hmm. for impeachment. You're never going to get that. Right. Whereas but, with the 14th Amendment. You would just need to overcome filibusters, just slightly lower bar. You need six, yes. so you need 10 Republicans instead yeah. of this. And you're going to get at least five, right? I think that's the number that they did when, when they were voting on whether or not the impeachment trial can proceed. I think you got five Republicans who were like, yes, it can proceed. And yeah. that's roughly the same number, I think, that would say guilty on the actual question, not Probably. just on it proceeding. Probably. But anyway, what I wanted to touch on was um, we actually don't really disagree. I think our only minor disagreement, if you can call it that, is just on the emphasis mm-hmm. of like, what's the more important factor? What's the overriding factor? Because yes, I agree with you. Like on the actual substance of it, um, I think the Democrats did a much better job. I think Raskin was compelling. Very. Um, I think Trump's lawyer was drunk <laughs> and all over the place and <laughs> babbling and couldn't stay on topic. It was actually hilarious to it watch was. it. Yeah, it was it's silly. Like talking about how he knows senators and loves senators. Like, what are you even? Some of it you really literally could not even understand what point he was. That's right. Yeah. But ultimately, and this is the part that really does annoy me, is that I know that they all know it's just a virtue signaling exercise. Mm. I know that they all know it's going to fail. And when you have a pandemic and a depression, as we have right now, when you put all of your energy on something like that, it does come across as frivolous. I mean, again, Trump, it was terrible what he did. There needs to be consequences. You can't talk out of both sides of your mouth and egg on an insurrection. That's not okay. Like there need to be consequences for it. But I mean, I feel like it's classic Democrats to not even pick the right fight and go into it guaranteeing themselves a loss. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so by least, the right fight, you mean they should have done the 14th Amendment instead of Well, yes, the right fight was the 14th Amendment. But, you know, e- the even broader picture is like virtue signaling exercises, messaging exercises in and of themselves. It's not a terrible thing necessarily, as long as your priorities are, in my view, intelligent. Right. And so if you're going to do a messaging exercise or you're going to do a virtue signaling exercise, however you want to discuss it, do it on healthcare during a pandemic. Yeah, because at least people know, you know, that's that has meaning on its own above and beyond the meaning of, I think, impeachment, because the main thing when you talk about impeachment colloquially, what's the idea? Yeah, you want to remove him from office. Right. right. That's how what everybody thinks when you talk about are you are they going to impeach the president? They think, is he going to be removed from office? He's already gone. So, like, it, even if you win, even if they got like, th- what are you going to do? You get to celebrate for half a day. Go, you know, sip some champagne and call it a day and that's it. You waste it however long just to say, like, we got it on paper. Well, and I think that is the difference that you're sketching out between why you and I were both more inclined towards 14th Amendment versus impeachment. What do you get with impeachment? You get the big spectacle. Yes. You get the trial. You get what we had this week, which, again, I thought the Democrats— I mean, it was chilling and quite searing, some of the, the footage video. that had Mitt Romney came within feet of this mob. Eugene Goodman, who was the hero cop that we had seen before in the videos, actually turned him around and mm-hmm. saved him from the mob. And, like, people who are downplaying this and saying, ah, they just were 
inconvenienced for, you know, these lawmakers weren't in danger, whatever. Like, when you have that kind of mob mentality, people did literally get killed. Yes. And there was real violence. And if you don't think that if they had happened upon Pelosi or Romney or Pence or one of the other people that they saw as a villain, like, you think that would have just been, okay, I think that's completely delusional. So it was searing seeing all of that footage and kind of putting the timeline together. However, I think why we see it differently than the approach that they took is like they wanted the spectacle. They wanted the, again, I don't want to downplay it, right? They wanted to have the trial. They wanted to have it consume cable news. Whereas all I really care about is the outcome of Trump getting banned from office. I don't care how you do it. I don't care how you accomplish it. And by the way, by choosing impeachment over 14th Amendment, they made it less likely that that outcome, which is the thing, only thing exactly. I really actually care about, I don't care about giving more cable news cycles yes. to what happened on January 6th. I care about that outcome. So by choosing impeachment, they made that less likely, but provided themselves with more of a platform to make the case yes. that this was really damaging. And I think the other thing that's annoying me is that there's a lot of self-filating going on. <laughs> like if you like some of these tweets from these Democratic Congress people. It's just like, oh, pipe down, fuckface, like patting themselves <laughs> on the back. Like, I, this is this is an important moment historically, and I'm here for this moment, and I'm going to stand up on the side of what is right and what is just. He's already out of office. Right. And if you wanted to do what you think is the ultimate goal, which I agree with you on, which is make sure he can't get in office again, why would you not want to do that with a lower number of people that you have to get? Right. 60 versus whatever the fuck, right? Right, right. So, 67. 67, yeah. yeah. Like, why'd you want to make your life harder? So, so, and I do want to, I do want to give some credit mm-hmm. to Biden, actually, who from the beginning, whenever he gets asked about impeachment, he's like, that's really not my focus. I'm focused on COVID relief. Mm. And in his press secretary, Jen Psaki, same thing. I mean, every time they get asked about it, they deflect to, we're focused on COVID relief. Mm-hmm. We're focused on getting checks out the door. I mean, look, obviously you I and know. I... Both have issues with yes. the way they've actually gone about that and the, yeah, the fact yeah. that they've like negotiated themselves down, et cetera, et cetera. But in terms of the messaging and the priorities, I actually think that Biden has been pretty smart on all of this stuff. So I also want to um, say that the Democrats made it a point to shorten this trial and make it as as condensed a time. This will be, I think, the shortest impeachment conviction trial in history. Um, and I think they were also smart to do that. So I do want to give them credit for that. But ultimately, look, the initial strategy was the wrong direction. And I think the other thing you're pointing to here is that we just don't have a lot of trust in the Democratic Party that they actually care about the outcome versus just the signaling and be able to being able to wrap themselves and cloak themselves yes. in like virtue and yes. morally signal that they're, you know, superior and all of that. Because what do we see in politics? It's always just about like, how can we win the messaging war versus how do we actually deliver for people? And you see that in the fact that they're planning on rather than running in the midterms on like, we got you checks and we got the vaccine now. They're planning on running on Republicans are the party of Q. Yes. And funny enough, that's exactly what I was typing down as you were talking there <laughs> is that um, I think my biggest issue with it really does boil down to this idea that 
they feel like our biggest winner is just Trump is really bad. No, you guys, seriously, he's so bad. And you agree he's bad. He lost the election. His numbers aren't that good. We're not him. I promise you we're not him. We're better than him. I don't care that it's a a super low bar to clear. That's the message I'm going to keep pumping out there because it also absolves me of having to do dick. That's it. So it's the anti-Trump thing. And then it's the QAnon thing, like you said, because it's the easiest thing in the world to run a campaign and be like, these guys are stupid. I'm not even stupid. They're stupid. They're dumb. And like, it, yeah, it's again with the pat yourself on the back, fillet yourself a little bit and act like now I'm a hero. And no, t- to your point, the real way to be a hero is get everybody a vaccine ASAP and get, get them $2,000 checks. And then you actually are a hero. And right. I, want, I want nothing more. And I've said this a million times now in the Biden era. I want nothing more than to give him endless credit and to give the Democrats endless credit. But for fuck's sake, you got to make me do it by staying true to your word. Right. You know, I mean, are you at the point now where even if they do the $1,400 checks, $75,000 and below that you'll be like, okay. See, that's the thing is Justin they just Jackson, like I'm wear sorry. you down. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> and do. I'm sorry to cut you off that's after okay. I literally asked you a question. But like, <laughs> Justin Jackson made that point to me. He was like, what they do is they'll, yes, they'll wear you down so much that when they do the Weasley bullshit, it's still like everybody goes, well, I guess better than nothing, right? Yes, exactly. It's like the Rahm Emanuel thing. Maybe we'll pick Rahm Emanuel for this position. And they don't pick him, but they pick somebody who's half as bad as him. Like Nira Tandon. Yeah, you're supposed to be like, at least it's not Larry Summers, right? Right, Exactly. (laughs) No, that's that's exactly what they do. That's actually a point that you've been making for a while. And I think that's exactly the case with the stimulus. I mean, and it's not just us saying that. There was a poll that came out this week that asked people, do you think that this stimulus is too much, too little, not enough? Or too much, too little, or just right. Mm -hmm. There we go. So 40% said just right. 20% said too much. And 40% said we need to do more. So you actually have 40% of the population who's saying this is not sufficient. Mm -hmm. And by the way, also this week, this is extraordinarily significant. The Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell, came out and said real unemployment if you consider labor force participation and how that's been dropping like a stone, is 10%, which is as bad as it was at the height of the Great Recession. So you have the populations like, this is maybe enough, but we actually should be doing more. You have things like $2,000 monthly recurring checks that's polling at 60-something percent. Right. Yeah. And the only area where Biden is negotiating is with the right wing. Right. Negotiating himself down, finding an excuse to do fourteen hundred instead of two thousand. Right. Negotiating down on the means testing. It looks like that may be, you know, may have. Don't get me started on uh, that. But why is it even a conversation? Why is it even a conversation? And why is that a conversation? But let's do two thousand dollar checks every month is not a conversation. It's not even the progressives like wrote a letter to him. We're like, here's what we really want. They didn't respond to it. I mean, they don't even feel a need to think about it when you have a large bulk of the American people who are like, even this one point nine trillion is not nearly enough. Yeah, that's well, to answer your question, the pressure comes from that direction in Washington from the establishment. The pressure comes from the right. Yeah. And they truly believe like, no, 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 the serious people are arguing for less money to fewer people. And so, you know, the only thing you could do if you are the left in a situation like that is to be really loud, aggressive, unapologetic, rally your base, the the power of the people, which is something we talk about all the time. Yeah. And then 
that's how you force your way into the conversation and you force your way to be taken seriously because they're never actually going to respect you. Like right. they respect, they respect idiots like Larry Summers. They respect people who write these articles that are like, I think vision means tested to 50,000 and below, not 75. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you know the backstory of how that started getting circulated? This, no. So this was actually really interesting. David Dan mm-hmm. and I think Sirota both were on top of this story, which I had missed. So all of a sudden you started seeing these op-eds popping up. Larry, Larry Summers and the Washington Post and the Washington Post had written, had an op-ed before about this thing. New York Times, Morning Joe starts talking. There's all of a sudden this elite media emphasis on we need to means test this because people above the certain income level, they're just adding it to their bank accounts. By the way, like it's a horrible thing to have savings. But anyway, right, yeah. they're like the only people who are really spending it are people below 50K. Well, it turns out this all came from this one paper that was like not even a real study, total bullshit study, half-ass done with really faulty data. Mm-hmm. And that one thing was just like shot into the bloodstream of mainstream media to try to create this consensus around, we really got to make sure that we give out fewer checks this time. We really got to means test this thing down to 50K. It was all based on this one bullshit paper. And then elite media picks it up and suddenly- That's this a is serious a, position. This is a yeah. serious position. Mm-hmm. This is a live conversation. You're talking about you know people who got $1,200 checks and got $600 checks under Trump who had- Every reason to expect that they were be that they were part of this when Democrats were relentlessly promising we're going to give you two K checks suddenly going what the hell what are mm-hmm. you talking about I'm not going to get it like I got the other ones I got more generous treatment from Donald Trump than you now I mean if they had gone forward with that it would have been a complete broken promise and again look good that they're backing away from it although it's not a done deal and they're thinking of having the phase out be more rapid so they're still messing around with it but. The fact that you're even having this conversation blows my mind when you just promised, like the most clear promise you've ever made, and you're doing everything you can to walk back on it. Yeah. um, And also, I just want to explain to people, because once this is explained, I think it's really a light bulb moment for a lot of folks. But the reason why, like to means tested further in the way that they're talking about is sheer insanity. Even putting aside just the, the, you know, the angle of it, that it was a flat out lie, putting that aside for a right. second from a from a policy standpoint, it makes no sense, because even if you agree with means testing to one extent or another, the more accurate way to do it is to cut universal checks. Yes. And then based on the new data, you can tax it back from what yes. the top one percent or whatever the fuck. percent. What they're trying to do is use 2019 income numbers. Yes. And that's how you determine who makes 50,000 and below and you give it to them, which the the data is outdated, number one. And number two, just because you make over 50K or over 75K does not mean you're not affected by the pandemic and the depression. Well, yeah, you're 29. I mean, my God, 2019 feels like 10 lifetimes ago. Yes. People have had their whole worlds collapse in the meantime. And Mm -hmm. you're you're gonna base it off the 2019 income. No, I think that's a really important point because again, this is how we backslide. The fact that these checks were means tested and not universal in the first place- Was already a problem. Was already a compromised position. Mm -hmm. And then they wanna further every chance. Like, how can we squeeze further? How can we squeeze further? I really don't understand where that mentality, I mean, I could take some guesses where that mentality comes from, but I really just think there's this like, 
ossified Reagan era deficit hawk instinct that anytime there's going to be a benefit that goes to working class people, it's got to be like, oh, we got to show how we're responsible. We got to be the responsible people who are cutting the budget deficit. Meanwhile, on the other hand, they spent, you know, $500 billion or $500 million on a troop deployment in the nation's capital, nobody blinks an eye about that. Nobody. No one mm-hmm. questions like, wow, we just spent millions and millions of dollars on this troop deployment for zero reason in the city of D.C. So it just shows you their priorities that when it comes to, oh, we want to actually give checks to people, that's the thing that there's got to be the penny pinching on. You'd rather 100 people get the checks who don't need it than one person not get it and need it. Absolutely. And that's not how they think. And it's funny because the Republican billionaire governor of West Virginia is actually making this point. And that you know? guy's also uh, doing decently well in terms of COVID as Vaccine. well. Vaccine. Yeah. He's, 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 let's not give him too much credit. Well, <laughs> apparently, though, and I told you the backstory on this, you know the backstory. Yeah. They don't have that many CVS and Walgreens there. Mm-hmm. And all the other states signed a, a, a deal with CVS and Walgreens, and so they're sort of limited in how they can distribute it. He didn't because they don't have that many there. So right. the government is very hands-on and going to, like, the local pharmacies to get them the vaccines. And yeah, it is working better. Uh, it 100% is. And the other thing that um, I read about is they had the National Guard engaged from the very beginning in vaccine distribution. Mm. And they're working with the independent pharmacies. He has, like, a lot of corruption issues. I mean, this is a guy who, like— billionaire, stiffs his workers. He owns the state, yeah. And, like, he owns the state of West Virginia. And also, um, apparently, even though he's a billionaire, he took, like, $11 million from the CARES Act and the original. Oh, so, let's not give him too much credit, but he is doing a good job on, the, on those on, two yeah, things. Yeah, right, on COVID. But, you know, the sure. other piece of this that we're, that's way up in the air now is $15 minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Again, incredibly popular position. 60-some percent support across the country, passed in Florida, a state that went very easily for Donald Trump. And it's like the one really specific thing that Joe Biden promised to Bernie Sanders when Bernie, like, dropped down and did his hostage video thing. And he was like, Joe, what a, do you support a $15 minimum wage? You can do your Bernie voice, but... Joe, do you support the $15 <laughs> minimum wage? Yeah. Yes, Bernie. Where am I? I don't even know where I am. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty much what happened. Where and are my pills? So... The House actually got $15 minimum wage into their reconciliation. Even Chuck Schumer was like, we should do it through the Senate. And Joe Biden comes out last weekend and completely kneecaps all of it and is like, I don't think it's going to be in this package. Why? So, but let me ask you, would we have gotten Mansion and Cinema? would they have fallen in line ultimately for the 15? See, here's the thing. If Biden if, made if it Florida, a priority. Yeah, got him, right. Yes. Yeah. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the piece of this is... They always have this attitude of like, we've got to defer to yeah, the yeah, yeah. vulnerable senators rather than these people are vulnerable. That means we can put pressure on yes. them to get this done. Yes. Like they mm-hmm. need, you know, and so, yeah, if Joe Biden made a priority and said, this is a red line, I'm, I promised I would pass $15 minimum wage. This is going to essential workers by and large, disproportionately people of color, disproportionately women, who, by the way, women have gotten fucked in coronavirus, mm-hmm. especially mothers. Like the numbers around it are just horrifying. If he made a priority, yes, he could 100% get it done. And instead, he immediately bows to pressure. Um, immediately negotiates with himself and kneecaps the whole thing and says, oh, we'll get to it later and we'll do it through regular order. Well, come on. You're going to get 60 votes. You can't get 51, but you're going to be able to get 60. That's so stupid. So, right. In other words, what it really looks like is an excuse not to do it. 
100%. That's what it is. It's yes. like, I, I, Joe Biden, do not actually want to do this, so I'm not going to do it. Right. That's basically it. Yeah. yeah. And so if you technically support something, but you're not willing yeah, to fight for it. You don't it, really support it. You don't really right. support it. Yeah. And actually, the funny thing is, so I would actually like to see, given that he already caved on this and it's miserable and terrible and he isn't really for it. I would actually like to see the same thing then that you talked about in regards to the $2,000 checks mm. about how, hey, this is an opportunity if you want to try to get it through regular order. Now, they're not, it's not going to get through regular order. But if you want to try to get it through regular order and then use that politically to just hammer them over the head right. endlessly, that's a good idea. It's also a good idea for a $15 minimum wage. Yes. Because, yes, you will get like 49 or 50 of the Democrats. And then, yeah, like... I, can you kind of chip away? I think some of the Republicans actually would vote for it. I, definitely not to get to 60, but 53, 54, something I like that. I don't think a single None of them? one of those really? assholes would vote for a 15. I really don't. I really, this is, they've By the all. Way, you, the CBO numbers also pissed me off. Did you see that? I did. Yeah. The CBO, it's funny because it, it, the, the substance of it actually was good because the whole question with $15 minimum wage and getting it through budget reconciliation, you can only do that if it impacts the budget. And so the bottom line is the CBO said, yes, it impacts the budget. So it could go through budget reconciliation. But they said it would lift some, I think, 27 million people out of poverty. It would poverty. help 27 million people. It would lift 900,000 out of official poverty. But then they had these bull this bullshit like, oh, it would kill 1.4 million jobs. And it would add to the deficit because it would increase the cost of goods. That part which I think is, is complete, complete bullshit, bullshit. Because it's actually been studied in detail that if you raise the minimum wage, what happens is a lot of the workers who are at the bottom of the economic ladder, they now work a minimum wage job, but then they also have to go to the government to make up the difference so that yes. they can survive. Right. And so what happens is if you make the corporation pay them a living wage, then they no longer have to go to the government. And in some instances, they wouldn't even qualify for a lot of those programs that they qualify for now. So it, by definition, you're going to shrink the size of the government, which is funny because that's actually, a you know, like a conservative argument in order to do a living wage. Yes. It's saying instead of the taxpayers picking up the difference, make the corporation. Right pay for it. Right. So let make let it happen in the private market. Force them in the private market to do it. Yeah. And the job killing thing, I think, is also kind of bullshit. I mean, that's just not what the, the this is a little the data is a little more mixed. I want to be fair. But yes. in terms of the, the most recent research, it does not seem to indicate. And we've seen this play out, too, like in Seattle, when they passed $15 minimum wage a number of years ago, and they were really the first large city out of the gates to make that happen. There was all kinds of apocalyptic hand. Oh, businesses are going to flee and it's going to kill all these jobs and small businesses are going to be destroyed and all of that. None of that came to pass whatsoever. And Seattle's actually been rated one of the best places to do business and one of the best places to work. And it's been an entirely positive thing for people there. So even the job killing thing, I think, is kind of is bullshit based on the other research that we have. But let's say that, look, if that's a concern, great. Create a job bank with $15 minimum wage. Make it part of your civilian climate core. So you're in guarantee that you're going to make up those jobs if those are lost elsewhere. Problem solved. couple points on that. You're right about all that. I, I was looking at this uh, recently. The minimum wage in Australia yeah. is effectively around $15 an hour, okay? It's like 19 or something in Australian dollars, but it's uh -huh. $15 an hour about. And um, 
they have the exact same unemployment rate that we do here. Yeah. So this idea that like, oh, it would lead to mass job. Well, if it led to mass job laws, you'd be talking about what, 12% unemployment rate or something in Australia when it's about the same. The other thing is when you look at a lot of the Scandinavian countries, this is interesting. A lot of them don't have a minimum wage, but what they do have is near universal collective bargaining. Right. So what really is their minimum wage in essence is way higher then what's $15, basically? Right, right. And in those instances, again, you're dealing with very similar unemployment rates. So the idea that, like, this is guaranteed to happen. Well, no. Th- might, might there be a slight marginal increase? Sure. But is that a reason to not do the policy that would lift probably millions of people out of policy, out of uh, poverty? Yeah. No, of course it's not. And then the final point is, it... it People tell on themselves when they have this conversation, because even if you acknowledge that you think it really is a problem, that we're going to have an increase in unemployment, there are other ways to deal with that. Like, for example, subsidize all the businesses that, hey, you know, you'd lose X number of businesses, uh, X number of uh, employees in this industry. Okay, so subsidize those and say, we will subsidize you if and only if you keep them on at $15 an hour. Right. Or my favorite idea is... uh, I would love to see, now this might be a little too complex to do, so I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but really there should be a a living wage law where it's a living wage per county in the U.S. Mm. So like, you know, if you're in rural Wyoming, it might be $9.25 because that's a living wage in rural Wyoming. If you're in New York City, it might be $27 an hour because that's what you need in order to survive. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you do it like that. Now, there are other issues with that. You run into, hey, then it's harder for people to move. Like, there are problems with it. But in terms of addressing it in a substantive way that fixes the concern on, you know, unemployment, it's like they don't, they're not interested in solutions to that because they're just using that point as an excuse to not do it. Of course, of course. And also, this argument always ends in basically then why do we have a minimum wage at all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If a minimum wage... Which is anarcho-capitalist bullshit. ...kills to not jobs, have it. Yeah. then, okay, we should let people work for 10 cents an hour, you know, and just get rid of it altogether. Now, the whole idea of a federal minimum wage is that you're setting the floor. Right. Yes. Nobody can go beneath this floor. And my understanding from the data is that there isn't a single state in the country where on the current minimum wage of seven twenty five an hour, you can afford a one bedroom apartment. Not once. So that's where we are presently. So that floor needs to come up significantly. I think $15 in any place in the country is like, I mean, you try living on that. You're not going to be living large. I don't care if you're in rural Wyoming or West Virginia or wherever you are. So in a place like New York City, you may need to be at 20. You may Mm -hmm. need to be at 25 Mm -hmm. to be able to live there given the cost of living. But yeah, this is all about putting a floor beneath people. And if you're worried about job loss, the government can... Joe Biden has already signed an executive order that says he's going to create a civilian climate core based modeled on the CCC from the New Deal era. Now, I read that executive order and it's very weak tea, unfortunately. Every time you read these, you're like, every I mean, I really have tried, you know, I've been trying to like, you've dug into it really like every time because I want to give him credit and I also want to not get bamboozled. Right. So this one, the climate orders, I really dug into because I actually think this idea of a new CCC is incredibly exciting if it actually is a thing. Mm -hmm. But the way it's written, it doesn't even have, you know, its own appropriation. It's supposed to be money drawn from pots that already exist. 
which is going to be nothing. Zero, um, zero guidelines about how large it should be, how many jobs it should create, how much money should be allocated. So it really, at this point, please prove me wrong, Joe Biden, looks like more symbolic window dressing than an actual program that's really going to make a difference. But if you wanted to make it an actual program to make up for any negative impact from the minimum wage, you could 100% do that. And by the way, that would be a wildly popular program. Wildly popular in any state in the country. You know, I've dug into the numbers in West Virginia a lot. I know, in, and that's a state where you would think there might be antipathy to like green job creation. It's 60 some percent of West Virginians mm. in this coal state that say, yes, let's invest in green jobs. Let's go forward with this. So um, that would be a very simple and very popular solution. But unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be headed in that direction. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And by the way, just to that last point, that's why I always was a little bit upset with how the Green New Deal was rolled out is because there was the emphasis on the wrong things. And instead of people thinking of it as like, this is a new New Deal, Mm. you know, it became more about like sort of just a smorgasbord of everything that the left wants. And it's like, it just didn't make sense as a policy. You wanted somebody to roll it out like this is the Green New Deal is a new New Deal. And all this is about is job creation all over the place and transitioning us off of those fossil fuels. Yeah. Um, On that point, just really Mm -hmm. quickly, this ties into like the Keystone XL pipeline Mm, debate, which is always also so disingenuous. Biden canceled the Keystone pipeline permit, which is great. And of course, all the Republicans right away, oh, you're killing jobs. First of all, let's just be clear the number of permanent jobs created. Thousand. 50. Oh, 50 permanent permanent jobs. Oh, permanent. Okay, right. 50 permanent jobs we're talking about. I thought a thousand was low, but that's the total job, I bet. But I do think, and uh, Richard Trumka, AFL CIO president, came out and even had his own criticism about like. He he had a measure. Measured. He was like, I wish they would have paired it with a job creating program. Mm -hmm. That's the Green New Deal. Like the whole Mm -hmm. idea of the Green New Deal is the innovation and messaging is we're not just like doing putting the climate first over your livelihood. We're pairing these things directly and inexplicably like inextricably Mm -hmm. together. And so the fact that centrists attacked this and corporate Democrats attacked it and sort of stripped them back apart, it actually creates a real weakness in the climate messaging, makes it harder to do anything. Well, that's exactly right. But I I do actually agree with Trumpka, though, that like the language should have been in that executive order. It should be together. Yes, getting I rid of the Keystone agree. XL. It's like, and part of this, here's what we're going to do now. To in get a con- you the jobs. Not in like a bullshit, oh, yeah, not teach you to code way either. Like, of course, here's the jobs. Yes. Here's how we're here's creating what, them exactly right here. what it is. And here's how you apply for here's it. Here's the pay structure. It's the same or better. You know, that's the move. Uh, I still want to talk to you. There's an, an interesting, interesting research that came out on whether or not the people who are at the attempted insurrection whether or not they were suffering from what some mockingly call economic, economic anxiety, anxiety right. right? I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about Nira Tandon. Mm-hmm. So let, first, go ahead. Start with the economic anxiety one because this is interesting. You want, Ta- you want me to get canceled instead of you? That's well, why you're kicking this one to me. Oh, I'll, uh, no. <laughs> I'm going to go above and beyond whatever you say. I just know that you know the facts of this story. Yeah. So this is really interesting. This is something we had talked about here, mm-hmm. I think, with Bosker. I thought he, it was with Justin Jackson. Maybe it was with both. Yeah, it could have been with both. Because with Bosker, that was the week it happened. Right, And um, So anyway, there was this kind of debate, which is a replay of a debate that's happened throughout the Trump era of, like, the people who stormed the Capitol, Mm -hmm. was it just race? Are they just, like, racist, violent, conspiracy theorists, or is there something underlying that? Is there, like, an economic trauma that they've suffered that relates to that? Let me just interject for one second. Yes. 
it's not just race. Is it ideological? Is it like they're drunk on Newsmax and One America News Network? And so it's all about the ideas, not necessarily about pain in their lives. You know what yes. I mean? It's like, were they brainwashed into a cult or is there something more beneath it? That's real suffering. Yeah, Sorry, and this no, is ahead. a debate that's been playing out throughout the whole Trump administration. Yes, like, never stop. Are these just basically people who are irredeemable? You're like, you can't possibly reach them. They're mm-hmm. too far gone. They're too evil. They're too stupid. They're too racist. Like, just forget about them. We shouldn't even be talking to them. Like, mm-hmm. just push them out of the public square altogether. Or is there something deeper going on here that actually, you know, the government could address? Is there fallout from the financial crisis? All of these things. And look, I think these things all tie together into, like, say it's just this or it's just that. Totally. is really silly. But there was a an addition to that debate this week from the Washington Post who went and they analyzed all the people who have been arrested for participating in the riot and they analyzed their backgrounds and their histories. And what they found is that a majority of them had suffered some kind of significant financial trauma in mm. their lives. What was interesting about this is instead of going in and saying like, what's your in- current income level? What's in your bank account? They looked at things like, have you had your house foreclosed on? Mm. Do you, have you had a tax lien? Have you been sued by a creditor? Have you declared bankruptcy? And so a majority of these people had some type of event like that. The one woman that they highlighted in particular names, Jenna Ryan. And I don't know if you remember this woman. She's private the one, one right? that flew in on the private jet and she's a realtor. And so you look at that from the outside and you're like, okay, rich, yeah, rich, that was economic my anxiety, that was my please, initial thought, like, yeah. absolutely not. But even with her, she had had a lot of significant financial problems. I think she had a tax lien placed on her recently. I think she may have had a bankruptcy in the recent past. So this was someone who was like sort of fake, yeah. faking it. But also sort of fuck you for taking the private jet, though. You 100%. know what I mean? Yeah, like what yeah. the fuck are you doing? Like 100%. Yeah. But Go pay so, your taxes, bitch. So as one concrete um, metric, 18% of the people who had been arrested in the riot had declared bankruptcy. It's 18%? 18%, which is double the national rate, which it also kind of blows your mind that the national rate is 9% of people yeah, have declared bankruptcy. But 18%, the unemployment rate was significantly higher. And then, yeah, you had a majority who had tax liens, been sued by creditors, foreclosures, all of these things. I mean, basically, like, some significant trauma post the financial crisis. Yeah. That had been a searing event for them. Now, look, before you, like, chime in, I just want to say, like, every people have agency, right? Yes. This is a, none of this discussion is to be, like, poor them, right, let yeah. them off the hook, mm-hmm. and, like, I understand why she flew on a private jet to, no. like, go and storm the Capitol. <laughs> yeah. I totally get it. Right? Because lots, millions of people, the overwhelming majority of people who struggle do not end up violently mounting an insurrection at the Capitol, right? You have total agency over the situation. But if you don't think there are going to be ugly after effects a decade later from this horrific, searing financial collapse and the corresponding, like, we're going to let everybody over here, like the 99%, you're totally fucked and we don't care. And the people who actually did this, we're going to let you off the hook unless you get a bonus and bail you out. Like, if you don't think there's going to be a societal consequence from this and create all kinds of insane um, actions and political violence and all of those things. Like, I think you'd be a fool to think those things aren't related. Totally. Um, I do think, see, this This report gives a lot more evidence 
to the side of the argument of like, no, it actually does have a lot to do with economic pain, and that helps them get to a point where they're more ripe for radicalization, Mm -hmm. which is, see, that's the thing. And this is the thing that some people struggle with is like, some people like to think they're just irredeemable deplorables. They've always been irredeemable deplorables. They're too far gone, and that's the end of the conversation. Don't even waste your breath. Let's just shame them all day long. Some people think that. Some people think the over-the-top victim narrative, like they have no agency. Oh, I'm just, I can't help myself but storm the Capitol, right? Right, right. So, right. But the, the, the reality <laughs> of it is, like you're alluding to here, it's actually, it's very mixed. Like it could be all of those factors mm-hmm. all put together. Mm-hmm. And this reminds me, and I was saying this to you off air as well, it actually reminds me quite a bit of the conversation, the national conversation that happens when it comes to Al-Qaeda and jihadists, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you got some people like the Sam Harris types would say it's all ideological. It's all because of Islam and they believe in uh, an extremist version of Islam. And that's why they're acting that way, because they read the books and they're acting exactly like it says. And then you have, you know, like Glenn Greenwald would make the argument of. No, in a lot of instances, it has to do with the fact that we've been bombing their home countries for decades and this person's grandma or or aunt got killed. And so they look at that and go, well, fuck the West. Now I am going to join a group that's fighting back against the Mm -hmm. West. So it's like it's real world tangible problems that then lead to the reaction. Right. And again, I think the point that I want to stress is like everybody's right on this. It's just you can't be all in one camp or all in the other. You have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis. You have to look at everybody's individual and particular situation, and you cannot discount any factors because the second you start to discount factors, then you're not going to be able to solve the problem. You know what I mean? So to your point, if we had lived in a society that valued these people more, that gave them a better shot at a decent life, Mm -hmm. you know what? Maybe there would have been a lot fewer people there. It's harder to radicalize somebody when they have a decent life, when they have a decent wage, they have friends, they have family, everybody gets together on the weekends and has a barbecue and it's lovely. Hope for your kids. Hope for your kids. Optimistic about your kids' future. And this reminds me of the other study that came out, which I forget what the exact number was. It's some ridiculous number of the states, 48 states or something. Deaths of despair are up massively. So the most in the Rust Belt, too. Right. So over the past number of years, in 48 states, working class mortality has gotten worse. So what do you think is going to happen with that scenario? Like on the most basic metric of whether people are living or dying, the country is failing. So if you just like take yourself out of the context, which is a hard thing to do when you live here, and we're just looking as an outsider at these factors of inequality and mortality and addiction and suicide, you would look at those factors and be like, this is not going to be pretty. And so, again, this isn't to say that, you know, these are all wonderful people. What was them, right, yeah. What was them, et cetera. But I guess the reason why I care so much about this is because I think it's a horrifically nihilistic and pessimistic view to be like, they're all, yeah, they're they're just, all just evil. Yeah. There's nothing we can do. There's then nothing there's, we can right, change. There's nothing you could change. You just shame them all day long and maybe eventually you'll get one of them out of 5,000. Right. You know? Exa- yeah. Exactly. What a bleak worldview that is. It's so bleak. Yeah. And I mean, I don't like the state of the country that we're living in right now. I don't know about you, but I don't think that this is all going like well and good. There's I saw like 40 percent of Republicans think political violence may be justified. I mean, this is like a very ugly place that we're Mm -hmm. in right now. So I like to think and the evidence, I believe, supports the view that if we gave people 
some hope in their lives and made things a little bit easier for them. So it was so they weren't dying earlier and having to succumb to addiction and and all of these things that, you know what, it might be a little bit better for everybody all the way around, that there would be some people who would be less susceptible to radicalization, who would be who would be able just within their own lives to be happier and find more meaning and have more more paths to that sort of meaning within their lives. So I see us very much at this um, at this fork in the road, really, where there's only two paths. One path is a police state. And if you believe the other half of the country is evil and you need to be protected from them, you're going to end up with a police state. And we already see the signs of that. Adam Schiff and other all these analysts going on news and we need a new domestic terror law and we got to treat these people the same way we treated ISIS and Al Qaeda like that worked out so well. You already see that path taking shape. The other path is, you know, for elites especially, but I think for everybody is kind of scary, which is more democracy, which is actually devolving power and having a more representative democracy, which is something we don't actually really have right now. Um, those are the only two paths. And if you think the other half of the country is evil and scary and the biggest threat to your way of life, there's no way you're going to feel comfortable with more democracy. You want those people to have no say. And by the way, of course, the right has their own analog of this, of like, they're socialists and they're going to brainwash your children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They have their own narrative about why Every, anyone on the political left is an evil threat to their way of life. They want us to be Venezuelan, right? That, yeah. like, that direction equals police state. That's just, there's no other way that it goes if that is your actual view of the country. Yes. And I think there's always going to be cults. There's always going to be some lone wolf bad actors. Of course. But what we're talking about here is setting up a society where you make radicalization a lot less possible in the first place because it's a lot harder for people to become angry and then get involved in a negative way if their basic needs are met. You know, we're not saying take everybody cradle to grave and there should be no, you know, difficulty in life or whatever. No, we're talking about almost making it an actual fair meritocracy where the mm -hmm. floor is reasonable. And then after that, you know, you can you make it your own way. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, Speaking of radicalizing events, Nira Tandon's confirmation hearings were this week. <laughs> what were your thoughts, Mr. Kalinske? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think my main takeaway from watching parts of it is that it, it really is true that Washington is the fakest place on the planet mm. because you have this totally. woman who is, and somebody actually brought the fact up that, like, you've tweeted more than Trump, Nira, <laughs> in the past however long, right? That's an amazing point. And the thing is, like, we all know who Nira really is. We've seen the things that she said. We've seen the fights she gets in. Right. I mean, she's got no chill in her at all. Not even a and little bit. every fucking question... Um, thank you, Senator, for that question. I really appreciate it. I think bipartisanship is great, and we can all get along. And I'm really excited to work with you, even though I just called you a douchebag seven minutes ago. <laughs> I said you're Voldemort, or she—I mean, some of her tweets were actually pretty relatable. Right, she you actually made that point Ted to me. Ted yeah. had, what, less heart than a vampire yes. or something like that? So, the few, so, in other words, the handful of times where Nero Tandon was actually correct about some right, shit— Right, that's what she she's getting to, I'm for. so sorry. I, I regret a lot of the things I said. I would have Respected the shit out of it, and she was like, "I don't regret that shit. Look at Ted Cruz. Seriously, <laughs> like you're ask really him gonna... to apologize. <laughs> yeah, me to apologize. Ask him to apologize for existing." Fair, fair. Um, look, I mean, this is a horrific situation. Because <laughs> it, it just is. It really is. Because 
so people understand, um, she's been uh, nominated to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Mm-hmm. It's This is one of these positions that reportedly Pete Buttigieg turned this down because it wasn't like glamorous enough for him, I guess, or whatever. Cars are our future. So now he's transportation. Anyway. Transportation is our future. But this is one of these jobs where Neera Tannen is a person who actually cares about power and right. understands power, right. which is why she hates the Bernie left so much because she was very clear clear-eyed about like this is a threat to my career that's right to my position in this town and she was 100% right about that and she was totally clear-eyed about that so she cares about power and this is a powerful position this is a position that is oversight of the budget lost on no one is the fact that Bernie Sanders now chair of the budget committee senate budget committee he'll be working a lot with Nira, the person maybe more than anyone else who tried to destroy him and his movement and smeared them, all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that piece, which makes it horrific. But the other piece of this that is maybe even more horrific is if you are the director of the Office of Management and Budget, you are in charge of granting ethics waivers to any of the, like, corrupt corporate cronies that don't technically comply with Biden's conflict of interest policies. Neera Tandon would be the person that would make those calls, okay? There are a million reasons why this should blow your mind. And this is not like speculation about how she's operated or whatever. It's really clear in her record that she has behaved in a directly corrupt manner at the Center for American Progress. Now, the whole concept of the Center for American Progress was basically like, this is going to be Hillary Clinton's administration in waiting. And so corporations, Wall Street banks, foreign, corrupt foreign governments, they all flooded money into the Center for American Progress, thinking that that would get them access and favors with the Clintons when they got back into the White House. And you see it just to give you one example. So she took in a bunch of money from Michael Bloomberg into the Center for American Progress. They wrote a report on um, anti-Muslim bias after 9-11. Bloomberg's um, programs and tactics in surveilling Muslims in New York City came in for tough treatment in that paper. And that was all because they were worried about Bloomberg's money in the future. That was all. Every single mention of him stripped out of the report. Just as one little, I could go on, you know, I could go on. UAE, Saudi Arabia, Israel. Israel, uh, 100%. Yeah, big financial institutions. Where it's, we're going to have a different policy. Like this is supposedly, you know, think tank putting out policy. We're going to change our policy papers. We're going to change our reporting. We're going to change the way we operate to make sure that we are not actually challenging any of the powerful interests that are giving us money. And that's the person that we're putting in charge of ethics waivers. Right. And then beyond that, she's also just terrible on the issues. Like this is a person who's repeatedly advocated for cutting social security. And this is somebody who's going to be directly involved with the budget. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the thing that everybody points to, which is like pro- maybe the number one most egregious thing was that casually referencing in emails internally with other people at Center for American Progress that we should bomb Libya and steal their Take oil. oil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, there's one thing you said early on that I needed to bring up because it just this stuck out like a sore thumb in my mind because I think it just shows the absurdity that is Washington, D.C. and how... The corruption is so grotesque that they don't even think of it as corruption. It's just like, this is just how it works. This is just what we do. This is just what we do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. You said she's in charge of, quote, ethics waivers. And I thought... Ethics waiver. Why is that even a thing? Like, yeah. Like, imagine in your life, you're like, listen, listen, listen. 
I'm a good person. I care about other people. I got to keep it real with you, though. I'm going to use a little morality waiver and murder this motherfucker. Right. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> like right. they had it coming. I got a few waivers, you know, that, I, that I've banked up. Yeah, so that's you, what I'm going to Like, what are you, you talking about? Right. And it's like a serial killer who's going to grant you that waiver. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just that really does show you how absurd this all is and the giant loopholes that they leave. Like you were telling me this. Remember, I was telling you that Trump got rid of like some. Uh, no, Trump started allowing lobbyists again to do something on his way out the door. Uh-huh. There was a ban on it, and then on his way out, he's like, eh, yeah, fuck it, Mark, we love lobbyists. Yeah, yeah let him drain the swamp my ass cheeks. <laughs> like, And then what happens? Biden comes back in, he puts it back, mm-hmm. and then you're like, I read the shit, and it, he he's not putting it back. He, if anything, it's worse, because he's pretending like he's in favor of restricting the lobbyists when he's not. So he, he leaves open this giant loophole. I mean, this all gets in a little bit long, but I think it's worth understanding, like... When you say lobbyist, you can, you have to technically register as a lobbyist. Mm-hmm. If you're a consultant who's just consulting people on, you know, the interests of Lockheed Martin or whatever, and you don't register as a lobbyist, then you can do whatever you want and it's it's no problem. It's a gigantic loophole. And a lot of the um, people in his administration sort of get through by that loophole. So it's a lot less than sort of the headline would make you think that it's actually doing. But yeah, Nira can make sure, even if you do have an actual lobbyist, Nira will be the one to be like, yeah, it's fine, whatever, it's all good. It's such a sick joke. It is. Um, One other thing I have to, story about Nira that I have to tell, which is, because it brings together, like, both the the ugliness and the corruption. Because again, Center for American Progress set up as Hillary Clinton's administration in waiting. So she came in to do a Q&A with their journalistic side, Think Progress, um, which was supposed to have independence. And Faz Shakir, who ends up going on to be Bernie Sanders' campaign mm-hmm. manager, asked her a question about Iraq. This is back in the 2008 primary. And Nira was so outraged. Like, how can you not ask Hillary Clinton about Iraq? It's like the most obvious question at this time, right? She was so outraged by this question from Faz that she circled around the table per the New York Times and punched him in the chest. Now she says, oh, I only shoved him. Only shoved, like that's bad for asking her a question. So again- The entitlement. The the entitlement and the corruption of all of this, meeting the ugliness, that's who we're going to have in this powerful position. And sadly, I think, you know, even Bernie Sanders, who has been at the brunt of all of this, who was like, had his movement a lot of ways kneecapped by Nira and her acolytes, I strongly suspect will go along with- confirming her which is kind of sucks that's i'm gonna tear up when that happens i will not I be know. a happy camper when <laughs> that happens painful. it's really painful but now that we've gone through the news of the day i think it's time that we jump into the interview okay so there's a lot i want to ask you okay um <laughs> what i want to do for people is really really kind of go back to the basics okay because i don't know how much people know and i don't i honestly don't know how much you've like sort of told people you know to this point mm-hmm. so let's let me start with where were you born where did you grow up? And um, talk a little bit about your childhood. Okay. Was it more, I can't say this word, and you know I can't, rural, rural, uh-huh. Uh-huh. suburban, urban, just walk me through all that. Okay. So um, I was born and raised in King George County, Virginia, very rural. Um, and that's actually where I live now still. I drive into D.C. My parents are there and we're very close with them. So I still live in King George, although I've moved a lot of places in the interim. Um, I actually grew up on like it was the middle of nowhere. We had um, goats 
and ducks at one point, and I was very much like in the woods all the time, and uh, very non-political upbringing mm-hmm. whatsoever. Uh, my parents, my dad is a, a physicist, actually. The whole economy of that little town is based on a naval base that's like a research center. So it's kind of weird because this didn't occur to me at the time, but in retrospect, it's sort of the closest you get to socialism in America because everybody basically works on the base. That's a great point. Almost everybody has like a middle class job. So there was very little. I mean, I don't want to say there were no class distinctions, but there are very little class distinction in my upbringing. And I lived there my, you know, went to preschool with the same kids I graduated with high school from. I still see them around town. A lot so of people So how are many still kids around. were in your class? Um, my graduating class, um, about 100. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's very, very small town America type stuff right there. Yeah, it was very. And like I said, I still, you know, when I go to the Y, I still know like people there. I run into my old swim coach. Now, do, do you that like stuff. that or, or do you feel do almost like, like give me a little bit? No, I love okay. it. The thing I like about it is that um, it's very easy in what we do to think that some of the like bullshit conversations happening on Twitter or whatever, like this really big deal and like, you know, somebody hurt my feelings or this happened or that happened or whatever. And I really like the reality check of running into some kid I went to high school with and me like they don't know or care or give a shit at all. And so I really like that part. Yeah, that's an interesting point because, you know, from my perspective, I always felt like when I was around my family that like they of course they don't think of me as like you're the Kyle Kalinske. They're like, shut the fuck up, idiot. We don't even right. care. We don't even care what you do for a living. Right. Like, we don't think about it. We don't watch any of it. Right. You know what I mean? So that does provide like a it's little. Very, it's very grounding. I mean, the other thing that was really important for me growing up is I was a very serious swimmer. And like that occupied a lot of my time and went on to like swim in college and all of that stuff. So that was kind of like a very central part of my identity for a lot of my life. Do you miss that at all? No. <laughs> Why don't you miss it? Um, swimming is not a fun sport. I mean, just going back and forth in a pool. Um, I do know some of the kids I swam with in college, like they still really love it and still compete or coach or just like do it for exercise. I, I am a big, I am like really into working out and exercise and it's good for my brain more than anything else. But to like go to the pool and the water's cold and you got to get all wet and your hair gets all that stuff. Like I just, I don't miss it. I do still love the water. I love taking my kids to the pool. I love you like, like would you go swimming yourself or you just watch uh, oh, them? Oh, 100%. And, okay. I love gotcha. to get in the water. I love to go to the ocean. But you don't I like love do to, laps. Like, body serve all that stuff, but no to go and like swim laps. I have zero interest in doing that whatsoever. Would you say that you learned discipline from swimming and would you say that it provided some sort of camaraderie with your fellow Swimmers? Yeah, I think all of team. I think all of that. I think it also um, was a big for me. It was a big confidence booster. Like it gives you a sense of what you're capable of. Um, but yeah, I think probably the biggest thing that I got out of it was a sort of determination and discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the greatest gift that it gave me was I do really have like my outlet is doing some kind of workout for mm-hmm. again my brain and like that connection was made through swimming so so you also said that when you were younger you were outdoors a lot do you feel like you're the kind of person who's particularly interested in comfortable in happy in nature yes 100 percent, 100 percent. and that comes a lot from my dad who was very um 
very into hiking and biking and being outside. So when I was a kid, we would go hiking in the um, Appalachian Mountains. He's originally from West Virginia, so he has that deep connection. So I think part of it comes from that. But yeah, growing up where we did, I would spend all day. My dad actually hung up these like rope swings from the trees that would go out over this big hill. So you feel like you're like really high up off the ground. And I would spend hours doing that um so that's definitely a part a very like important part of who i am for sure so with your dad being like a scientist Mm -hmm. right physicist Mm -hmm. and your mom being a teacher Mm -hmm. right do you feel like their professions and their personalities sort of not pushed you but led you in certain directions that made you want to do certain things in in adulthood or would you say that it was really a crapshoot and it didn't even necessarily matter what they were interested in that you were going to fall wherever you were going to fall Hmm, that's interesting um i've never really seen a connection between what my parents do and what i do i will say so i have two sisters one of them personality wise takes very much after my dad the other one takes very much after my mom and i'm definitely a mix of you're a mix of the two So I guess the one that as I'm thinking this through, like my mom is very extroverted and my dad is introverted Mm -hmm. and I have sort of like qualities of both, Mm -hmm. which I think kind of makes sense for what we do. Mm -hmm. So I think I err a little bit more on the side, which people might be surprised to hear this, of being an introvert. Like if you had to put me in one category, but I, you know, have like a mix of those qualities that I think kind of works out well for the type of work that we do. I definitely think that that's the case. Um, What... What I see in your politics more than anything is like the the primary concern is a care for the working class. That's the main thing that I see through all of your politics. Where did that come from? Why do you care about unions and, and workers? So this was part of my political evolution for sure. Like I was saying, I really didn't grow up in a political household. When I was in high school, I couldn't have told you the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. I really just didn't know. Um, my first introduction, a lot as is the case with a lot of people my age, like my first sort of radicalizing event or engaging event was the Iraq War in opposition to the Iraq War. But the thing that really informed where you could draw a through line from you know, when I was younger to my present day politics, because I've definitely changed a lot in my views. And the biggest change has probably been like how rah-rah Democrats mm-hmm. I am. But the the through line is I lived in this town um, for reasons that are complex and not really worth getting into in Ohio, um, in the industrial Midwest. You know, it was like one of these classic, quote unquote, Rust Belt towns right on the border with Pennsylvania. It's actually where Ohio, Pennsylvania and West Virginia all come together. And it's a town called East Liverpool. And it used to be where all the like, you know, pottery, like plates and cups and dishes and mugs and all that stuff was made there. And that all basically went overseas, 50s, 60s. But in the next town over, there was this giant steel mill. So you had good union middle class jobs. And it was very hard, dirty, nasty, strenuous jobs. But you could earn a living. You could live, you know, and have a, a decent middle class life. That all closed down essentially in the 80s. And so East Liverpool, like many other towns, is really struggling. And, um, you know, they've struggled in the opioid epidemic. Um, People just don't have a lot of pathways to, to hope. There's just not a lot of economic opportunity there. And living there, that was the first time I, I'd lived in a place like that. And that was a really shocking experience to me because what you realize living in that region is it's not just East Liverpool. You go up and down the Ohio River and it's every single town looks exactly 
the same. And these are all places, once you start to dig into it, politicians made a lot of promises to every time it's election time, they come back to town and say, we're going to rebuild it. We're going to make it great again, right? Time after time after time. And all the while they're saying this, what they're really doing is just fucking them over more. Right. I mean, NAFTA being the the primary initial example that just decimated these regions and nobody really seemed to care. So that for me was a really, really formative experience. And it's not an accident that that area where I used to live used to be a very uh, democratic area, union, labor, Democrats, right? And now it's become a really like right-wing Trump area, like Trump cleans up in that area now. And that transition has happened just over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years. It's been really recent. So to witness that transformation, to understand the economics, to understand, to really like see up close what that kind of despair and devastation looks like, that was a very, very formative experience for me. So it sounds like this is one of those places where you had a number of people who were the two times Obama voters who then flipped to Trump, right? Yes. It's one of those things where- 100%. And both times, you know, they they cast their vote and then both times they're like, this isn't working out. Like nobody's actually representing me at all. Yeah. So the nearest cities, just to give you a sense of the region, are Pittsburgh and Youngstown. Right. So and Youngstown is was just in the was it Lordstown or Youngstown the one that just shut down another Chevy plant? So young, Lord, it's Lordstown, but I mean it's tied into that region's economics and um, Mahone County where uh, Youngstown is that it went for Trump this time. Um, for the first, I mean, this is just one of these areas classically shifting. And I mean, this is what, what sucks so much about the Democratic Party is rather than being like, oh, my God, how do we win these people back? They're like, nah, fuck them. We'll go right. with Arizona instead. You yes, know, exactly. there's just like we'll no go good, no care about rich suburbanites who golf every day. Yeah, in exactly. Arizona. Yeah, exactly. So based off what you just described there, I feel like and correct me if I'm wrong. One of the main reasons why you have the politics you do is not just because you were there. And you were, you know, you had the experience of what these places are like, but it also seems like your reaction to what you saw was like, I'm disgusted. Yes. And so since you felt disgusted, the idea was somebody's got to do something about this. Yeah. Right. And so that made you want to get more involved and made you want to talk about it more. Yes. And my initial like actual foray into politics, I don't particularly recommend, but I was like, what that I'm going to run for Congress. Like, I've never worked on a campaign. I don't know anything about a campaign. Like, I'm just like a normal person in terms of my engagement with politics. And I was like, you know what? Um, what what the hell? What's the worst that could happen? So, in so you had no infrastructure set up when you decided <laughs> to run? You were just like, I'm going to try this and then <laughs> whatever happens, happens? I had no idea. I mean, I was like Googling, how do you run for Congress, you know? And so um, the seat I ran for, 2010... The worst the height possible of the, yeah, year you could Tea run. Party bloodbath against all the Democrats. Right. right? Yeah, they yes. destroyed all the Democrats. Yeah, yeah. and so and I was running in you know where I live now, mm-hmm. um, King George County, conservative district, very right. rural conservative district, still held by the same Republican. Um, so it's not one of these that's like you know become yeah. suburbanized mm-hmm. and shifted right. It's still it probably is a little bit better for Democrats now because it reaches up into some of the D.C. exurbs. Gotcha. But it's a rural conservative mm-hmm. district during the height of. the Tea Party. And I went to all of these. My policy was if a group in the district invited me to come speak, I would come speak. So I went to all of these Tea Party meetings when they were obsessed with Glenn Beck. I mean, it really is kind of a preview of like the little bit of a, you know, cultish 
mentality that has that you can see all of the seeds of that um, with these Tea Party groups and their obsession with Glenn Beck and all of those those politics. And you also got a preview of some of like the ugliness that has come to inform our politics as well. Just pri- take me just prior to running for office. What were you doing? Um, I was working as like in I, we had like a little small business, mm-hmm. um, my husband and I, and we were uh, we did actually a good bit of work overseas. We spent some time in Jordan on like an educational um, language learning product. So that's what I was doing. I wasn't. Um, he was more of the primary actor in that. So I was more of sort of like helping him out however was needed. And the big thing that also informed my politics is like my first daughter, Ella, was born, this is funny timing, on the day before the pres- the Democratic primary in 2008. Um, so I was actually in the hospital during the 2008 primary and couldn't go and cast my ballot. But it really did change my... The impetus to really dive in and mm-hmm. get engaged. You were talking about how I was like disgusted with what's going on. The real impetus was becoming a mother mm-hmm. and now feeling like, oh, I've got to like, I can't just sit back and hope for the best. I need to take a more active role. And so that was what caused me to become sort of more directly engaged. So you run in 2010. Mm-hmm. You lose because it was a Democratic bloodbath that entire election. Yeah. <laughs> um, when you were running, did you have a moment where you look around and you go, the way this works is the dumbest thing I've ever seen and it's the most corrupt thing I've ever seen and I don't want to make 8,000 phone calls per day. What am I doing? Yes. Yes. All of that. So that, that was the feeling. Well, the really depressing thing about running for Congress is, especially in the House, but in this dynamic has only gotten worse, is you come to realize it, it matters so little what you do. Mm. It's just you're so subject to the national winds. You're so subject to the way that the lines of the district have been gerrymandered. All of those things are a million times more important than what your like policy platform is right, yeah, and yeah, how yeah. well you deliver mm-hmm. your stump speech and how good you do in the debate and all that stuff. It's just purely like partisan tribal reaction driven by the national winds. And again, that trend has only strengthened now. Um, which is why, actually, I think it's so much more important uh, to focus on primaries and who ends up winning in those primaries, right. which is obviously mm-hmm. an insight that you, Just yeah, that you had and, and acted on. But I think that's like that's really the direction of how you shift things and how you change power because the general elections at this point, it's just like, okay, how many Republicans are in this district? How many Democrats are in this district? How motivated are these groups by how pissed off they are about Donald Trump or whatever the national thing is? And that's kind of what you get. Um, So the, I don't know if you're going to ask me about this, but I can't talk about the congressional run without like the photos and how I end up transitioning to, to media because this was the other thing that happened that shows you how silly the whole thing is. I was... 28 years old. Um, I'd worked so hard, like trying to make people take me seriously in this campaign. I have this fucking weird name. You know, I don't really look like the congressional candidate that people expect. I've got this young daughter, et cetera. So I'd worked so hard to be taken seriously. And then it was maybe about a month before election day. um, This blogger, local blogger, got a hold of photos of me 
from when I was, I was, it, there's, it's such an embarrassing non-scandal. Like it was, it, looking back, it's so incredibly tame, but they were like, I was at a party and I was, they were, I was holding the red solo cup and it was sort of like sexually suggestive. Um, and this story blew up. So they get picked up by a larger Virginia blog and it goes national from there. And suddenly I'm the subject of all these cable news segments about like, how can anyone vote for this hoe, basically? And the <laughs> it was, it's, it's sort of like the original slut shaming. Social media su- slut shaming. Completely. I've, se- I've seen the pictures. They're not even close to I wouldn't even call them risque. I mean, people will be really, really disappointed when they Google them because yeah. they're like, you look at that and be like, that's it. But um, you know, at the time, my more prudish environment at the time, right? totally different environment. Yeah. And um, a lot of my advisors at the time were like, just don't say anything and hope yeah. it blows over. I'm uh. like, that's not happening. And number two, <laughs> some of them were like, pretend it's not you. What? <laughs> and you've seen pictures of me when I'm young. Yeah, I look the... exactly the same. There's right. like no denying that it's me. So I decided to go and defend myself mm-hmm. and be like, look, this is kind of, this is like sexist bullshit. Right. No one would care if this was a dude, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, no one cares anyway. Yes. Like actual regular people want to know how are you going to get their jobs back and mm-hmm. like, how are you going to make life a little better for them? They don't care about this. And ironically, so two things ironically. Number one, I was right. Um, the scandal actually only, we did a little polling on this, actually only helped my numbers even though I still lost That's by quite so a lot. It That's was hilarious. It actually ended up being a net benefit but number two no one would have ever heard of me if this didn't happen so the cable news shows that i went on then they liked you when you they were liked on. me and mm-hmm. so when i lost they were like come back and talk about women in politics come back and talk about whatever the news of the day is and that's what snowballed and so and ended up in this like totally unintentional media space so you were doing regular basically they the way it works you know for these cable news networks mm-hmm. is they have you come in as a contributor Mm-hmm. You don't get paid. Well, so first, you're not even a contributor. Okay. Contributor, it means you have a contract, an official relationship. Okay. And then they throw you like, you know. So you, you're a guest first. You're a guest. And you don't get paid. Right. And how many times do they make you do that before they were like, eh, let's make her a contributor? I did that for about a year. For a year? So they really push you through it before. I did that for about a year. And then I was a contributor for about a year. And one of my, um, the, the person who was the best to me of everybody was actually Dylan Radigan, who had his show on MSNBC then, and they had a panel format, like the panel was really integrated into the show. And so the, my normal, every Friday, it would be me, Torre, and Ari Melber, mm-hmm. usually. It would vary a little bit, but that was like kind of the trio that was always on the panel together. And so when Dylan decided to leave MSNBC, they created the new show, The Cycle, out of those previous panelists. So it was me, Torre. It was actually originally not Ari. It was Steve Kornacki and S.E. Cup because um, they wanted a conservative on the panel. And so that's how that came to be is basically all from um, – Dylan, who was the very first person who ever put me on air, by the way, even mm-hmm. before the scandal, he actually had me on air. Then he had me on the scandal. He had me on air during, you know, that. And then every single week I was on his show for a long time. And then his producer, a guy named Steve Friedman, who's kind of my mentor in television, has done, you know, Today Show and all this stuff. He's kind of a, he's fairly legendary in the business. Um, he started the cycle and chose me and the others for the the panel. So that's how that happened. So I'm interested in, number one, 
how you felt every step of the way from getting your foot in the door to being a contributor to finally being a host, how you felt that entire time. That's one thing I'm interested. The other thing I'm interested in is the ideological growth Mm. from the beginning point to the midpoint to the end point. Mm. Okay. So how did I feel? I was very, I mean, cable news sucks, right? (laughs) So like, you know, there's part, there's times where you do something. The the thing that I loved the most on the cycle was, first of all, you know, we had a, um, I got along really well with my Mm co-hosts and we, um, most of the time, of course, there were there were areas. And so it was a fun dynamic, just working dynamic. Like we had a lot of fun together on air, behind the scenes, whatever. But the other part of it that I really liked, and you'll see this in Rising Now, is we would do these, um, we called them rants. Now, of course, they're radars. Mm-hmm. And it would be just a little monologue about whatever you wanted to talk about. And so that was really the only space that I that you really had to very much say your piece. And I go back and look at some of those, and I actually feel really... Not a hundred percent. Some of them are cringy, right? But I actually feel really proud of of some of the content I did there. I mean, that's where I did my monologue about please don't run Hillary or like a corporate chill and nobody wants this, right? Um, I did a piece on basic income. And this is again, this is like you know, twenty twelve, right? So that's this before is Andrew long Yang, before, before people knew this right. was a thing. Mm-hmm. But it was starting to bubble internationally. And I thought it was really interesting. Did a thing on the plutonomy and how the whole economy is being centered around the top. So I can still see when I go back and look at that work, some through lines to like you know how I ended up. It's almost like you know I. I had some of the pieces but hadn't really fully developed the picture yet because the other side of it that's really cringy is like the amount that I would go to bat for Obama even when he really didn't deserve it. And, you know, the the way I probably I pulled my punches on certain things um, because I just had this overall framework of like the Republicans are the bad guys and the Democrats, the Democrats are, are basically country. good. Like they fuck up, but, you know, overall they're well-intentioned. Did you feel any pressure from management or higher-ups, whether subtle or otherwise? I felt very direct pressure on the Hillary Clinton thing. And um, I've told this story before, but I think it's really instructive. Most of the way that these things work is more like the manufacturing concept. Like, no one's telling you directly. But when I did that monologue um, against Hillary, and this was in 2014, so it was, like, really early in the mm-hmm. process. Nobody, mm-hmm. you know, we didn't have any idea Bernie Sanders was going to run. None of that was right. out there. And... Um, Basically, I was I was told that if I was going to do any more uh, monologues on Hillary, they would have to be approved by the president of the network, Whoa. which is not a thing, Whoa. not a normal thing. Right. And um, and so, you know, I was never told I couldn't say anything. But that has an impact on you when you know that you're going to have to, like, go th- jump through the right. street and it's mm-hmm. going to be under scrutiny and it's going to be uncomfortable. And apparently what um, I came to find out is in this very predictable, somebody from her world had called and said, we're, you're treating her unfairly and we're, we're going to deny you access. You're not right, going to be able right, to get right. an interview with her. You're not going to be able to get these things when she runs for president. And then you're going to be left out in the cold. That's amazing. Um, and it's I think it's what people, like, guessed would have went on, you know, like people who are in our audience they listen they listen to that and they go yeah that's like exactly the sort of you yeah know, smoke-filled back room type nonsense that, that they're afraid that of that was definitely the most direct intervention right. most of the time it's just like a kind of group think kind of subtle shaping of incentives who even gets hired like yeah. those are the things that shape it but that was very direct intervention so how many years were you at msnbc five 
that's a long time in cable news years. That's a lifetime in cable news years because usually people in and out when it, when it comes Oftentimes, to this stuff. Yeah. Yes. So you grow ideologically from rah-rah Democrats, Republican bad, Democrat good. This is, you know, what we're doing. And then by the time you left MSNBC, were you the crystal ball that we know now? Or no. Or you were still a little mm-hmm. more rah-rah team Democrat? For sure. So, so what was your last year again at MSNBC? 2015. 2015. Okay. What happens 2015 until the beginning of Rising? When, and actually, when was the beginning of Rising? So um, I think the big, you know, reflective moment, and it took a while to like fully transition to the crystal ball we all know and love or hate now. Um, but I think the the real uh, moment was Trump getting elected. Mm. I was like, these fucking people, like you can't even beat this dude. And then you right. just have your eyes open. I mean, it really is an eye-opening yeah. moment. And then the way they go to, they they don't do any self-reflection. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like, oh, it's, you know, it was Russia and it was sexism. And look, those things might have had some role, but to not even look for one second, you, like you lost to the worst pathetic. candidate in the world. It's the most pathetic You thing, had yeah. everything, you had the money, you had the media, you had everything going for you and you lost to this guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's when it really um that's when the the worldview really sort of took hold and i actually wrote um i was at at this point i was on kid number three Mm -hmm. and i wasn't really working i would do little things here and there and i actually wrote a book that almost no one read which was fine um (laughs) that i (laughs) self-published but that was the place where i did a lot of my deeper thinking research and like actually you know from Mm. that if you read that you'll see who i am now even though there were still some areas where i hadn't fully sort of realized um you know all of the all of the kind of ideology that i have now so the new rising starts 2017 not the new excuse me the original rising rising starts starts 2017 2018 18 yeah rising starts in 2018 original co-host is buck sexton not a real name, not a real person. Can you imagine they put Crystal Ball and Buck Sexton? Yes, <laughs> they might as well name it the Porn Show. Yeah, the morning, <laughs> Crystal Ball your and morning Buck Sexton. Porn Show. Yeah, That's exactly. like, <laughs> yeah. And um, they wouldn't let us put it on YouTube. It's probably just as well because look, Buck is. I mean, we got along fine, and I don't have any issue with him, even though his politics suck. But um, you know, we had a more conventional like left, left right, right dynamic. dynamic. Yeah. We didn't really have any overlap, so um, that had a more just kind of standard cable news feel to it because the divisions and the overlap there wasn't anything unique or interesting so, about it standard cable news feel and it's not allowed to go on youtube not allowed on YouTube, which, so you again, talk, I'm so you talk to yourself for, for however long that lasted yes yeah for nobody about was a year about yeah. a year then um buck who was already doing radio shows basically like eh, i'm just gonna go back to new york he wanted to be back in new york and he's like i'm gonna focus on radio so now let me pause you there for a second mm-hmm. at that time you probably were a little panicked right Weren't you thinking, like... Oh, I thought this thing was not going to (laughs) work. So you were thinking, I might have to go get a a normal job. Yeah, I was like, you know, I'll write out my contract, and then that'll be that. And, um, yeah, so... But so I... Sagar had been been filling in for Buck, and I thought, you know, he's... Sagar's really young, and he hadn't hosted before. Mm -hmm. So there were some, you know, some, like, raw skills that he needed to develop, but you could tell this guy was really smart Mm -hmm. um, and had a really unique 
heterodox perspective. Yes. And this is what I had been wanting for Rising from the beginning was like, how can we have this conversation where... You A know, non-dumb left-right dynamic. Dynamic, yeah. where there's an interesting overlap, yes. but then we still have different views on things. And so I thought there might be something here. And for him... You know, this was an opportunity, I think, to he was at the Daily Caller. So this Mm -hmm. was an opportunity to be in mainstream and not be just in like the right wing sphere. And so he knowing I fully disclosed to him, like, look, I don't know. And here's some of the challenges and whatever. He decides to come on board. And and one of the requirements is this is going on YouTube. So that's when the rising that people know was sort of born. And the first interview that where we were like, oh, I think this is going to work, was we interviewed Andrew Yang. Ironic that... Yes. yes. Yeah. We, I, we hope you're feeling better, Andrew. <laughs> we really circle. do. Yeah. Um, we'll talk to you soon, buddy. We interviewed Andrew and did like a longer interview, 20 minutes or something like that. I remember seeing clips of that and enjoying it because you were asking very substantive policy questions. And that's what people liked about it. Yes. They were like, this isn't the bullshit. Normally, it gets totally dismissed. Mm-hmm. This isn't the bullshit questions. That pe- they're actually engaging. That was it. I mean, we just asked, like, we engaged with his actual platform and policy mm-hmm. positions and people were like, oh my God, we love this. And so that probably got, I wish I could remember. I mean, I probably got like 24,000 views and, and we're like, oh, like my oh my God, God wow. Because everything else was getting like 100 views, you know? Yeah. So that was when we first, and we got a lot of subs from that. Um, that was when we were first like, okay, I think this is going to work. Yes. And then it was nose to the grindstone and you guys kept going. And yes. then you are where you are now. So, which leads me to this question. What does the future hold for Crystal Ball? Hmm. Let me take a sip of water and contemplate. <laughs> By all means, go right ahead. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think the future holds more of... I'm, I'm really happy doing the what we do together mm-hmm. here. Like, I, I hope people are enjoying it, but I love having the space that we have to do these longer mm-hmm. conversations and longer interviews. Um, I really, really believe in the mission of Rising, even though it's like, it's controversial to some people. Oh, Just very, even yeah. the idea that mm-hmm. you are engaging with someone who has these views that, yeah, sometimes I think Sagar's takes suck, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. But that's the whole point. But I really, kind of going back to our early conversation about, you know, do you believe that there are people who are reachable and who have just been screwed over and is there a different type of politics that you could have that isn't where Trump isn't the dividing line or even left right is the dividing line but there's more of like a populist um, working class movement is that even possible and to me like if I can't talk to Sagar if I can't even like we're totally fucked if you can't have that conversation he's like the most reasonable person you could possibly have in that in that space so um, I really believe in that mission and the thing that has encouraged me the most is we truly have people from every part of the ideological spectrum who watch the show. And I think that's unusual. I mean, we have real right way. We have real leftists. Mm -hmm. We have actual, like, we've got libertarians. We've got, you know, neoliberal shills. (laughs) We've got, like, everybody is represented in the audience in different proportions. But that, to me, that there can be an overlap there at all of people watching the show and enjoying it and taking different things from it um, makes me feel more proud than anything else. You're a phenomenally talented host, and you've made it to where you are, not just because the ideology is there and because you're doing something genuinely interesting, but it I, I know it requires a lot of work yes. for you to get to this point, without a doubt. And the explosive growth of Rising 
is really impressive and it's nothing to scoff at. And that leads me to my final question for you, which is, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit okay. here. Um, you're running for president. Tell me the top three policies on the crystal ball agenda. Um, okay. So I think some of those will be obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. Um, federal jobs guarantee. As a separate one or part of separate the... One. Okay. We'll, give so it, we'll make that two. We got two. I don't think it's fair to put those... Yeah, together. I don't either. I was going to call you out on that okay. if you did it. All right, yeah. <laughs> um, so central to my politics, like we talked about, is like working class and I don't... And also not having the country like disintegrate. And I don't think that we have a shot at that if we don't have a powerful, large labor movement. I mean, I just think it's absolutely essential. And, you know, of course, unions aren't perfect. And there's different, you know, issues have been different issues there in the past, etc. in terms of discrimination, uh, in particular. But this, the, the shop floor and the union hall are some of the only spaces in America where you still have people across a lot of different backgrounds, religious, race, gender, interacting with each other and engage and not just interacting with it, but engaging in a political project together. So, Probably the, you know, the biggest focus I would have is on completely transforming the landscape in America for labor organizing. And you see right now, I mean, you see right now with the, I don't know if you've been following the election, the Amazon election down in Alabama, where it's a right to work state to start with, right to work, such bullshit framing, um, in the South. And you're going up against this gigantic corporate behemoth. And it, you know, they're engaging, I mean, they've engaged Pinkerton goons to quash union movements in other places. They have spies. They do all this anti-union propaganda that they're technically, you know, allowed to do the way that they do at information sessions. It's It could not be more of a rigged election. Now, I they may still succeed, but it can't be the case. You're never going to have an actual powerful labor movement as long as the deck is so incredibly stacked and the system is so incredibly rigged against you. That's not a fair process. It's not really a democratic process. So I think you have to reverse it where right now people have to opt into a union. It needs to be more like you have to opt out of union. Right, where the so- assumption is union representation. And that can be done either exactly that way or through the model we were talking about earlier through it's more, it's more like sectoral bargaining right so everybody they have is, this in some scandinavian countries absolutely, and it works really well of course it does their wages are like your actual minimum wage is like 20 or 30 bucks an hour there right you and know? so that benefits time I, off that more than anything would really um transform the landscape and it also the thing that i like about it and that i think is so incredibly important is you are actually then devolving power to the working class where it's not like dependent on elites at the top to throw you some crumb oh we'll give you a two thousand dollar check now we'll give you some you know little subsidy so you can buy cobra you know healthcare or whatever it completely changes the power dynamic in the workplace and in the country at large right so those are my things. Those are three. I, I think I, I got, would have gotten like two out of the three. Federal yeah. job guarantee one was the one I was like, oh, I didn't, that was interesting. Yeah. That that one came out. Yeah. So. I think, I mean, it's again, it's just like providing a basic mm. floor for people so that they have, you know, essential human rights and something that has been a long time coming in this country. So you got my vote. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Well, um, shall I ask you some questions? Uh, go ahead. I'm in the hot seat now, I guess. <laughs> so... Um, I guess I will start in the same place you started with me, which is basically like, you know, 
Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? What was the first kind of little spark of interest in politics? So grew up in Rochelle, New York, which is in Westchester County. Um, I was, I would say for most of my childhood, I was relatively comfortable. We were, you know, it varied when you talk about it, but anywhere from upper middle class to sometimes middle class. Um, Nurshell's very diverse, incredibly diverse. And I went to public school until college. College, I did not, but everything below that, I went to public school. So I had friends of all different, you know, race, religions, creeds. Um, and I th- definitely think that influenced my politics in some ways. So the first time I got interested in politics is actually very similar if not identical to you, um, the Iraq war was a huge part of that. And, you know, there's, you were a lot younger than me then though. (laughs) True. (laughs) But there's a number of things that came together all at like the same time, you know, like I started getting interested in like the atheist stuff, Richard Dawkins stuff. I would Uh read his stuff. I started trying to read Noam Chomsky. You can't even really call it reading because it all went right over my damn head. You know, I read it. I tried to read a book called, um, I think it's Chomsky on anarchism where he talks about like anarcho-syndicalism and I'm sitting there reading it when I'm like 19 or whatever. Oh, how, right did even, how did it even come to your attention to like start reading Chomsky? Um, I think that there was a professor who kind of introduced me to him a little bit. And then like when YouTube became a thing, 2006, I think is when it started. Okay. I started watching like a lot of Chomsky lectures and stuff. And then also the other thing is, and I, I've admitted this before, this won't, this part's kind of embarrassing. But, like <laughs> I totally went down the rabbit hole of the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Like I was, I was watching it and like, oh my God. So what do you think it was about that that was um, appealing to you? So and this is actually interesting because it was the 9-11 conspiracy stuff. And then I'd also like as soon as I started getting interested in politics, I tried to get it everywhere. So I would turn on like Fox News mm. and I'd watch Bill O'Reilly do some stuff. Mm-hmm. And what I gathered from what was going on is that you had like totally different views of the world on the same set of facts. Yeah. And that made me really interested in it because it's like a total blank slate. And I started listening to Tom Hartman uh-huh. all the time. Big Tom Hartman fan. Um, and then at one point, I know, still gross, Bill Maher. I started watching a lot of Bill Maher. Um, he was better back in those days. He was, but he still wasn't good. I mean, it's through rose-colored glasses you look back and yeah. you think, you know. But his brain has definitely been broken by the Trump His brain has definitely been broken. But honestly, I think the, the, the sad thing is when you're young... I think I was more, I more gravitated towards his, his confidence. And really mm. now I call it arrogance, whereas mm. now I find it totally insufferable and smug. Whereas back then when you're a kid, you don't know much about m- anything. You see somebody who's like really projecting confidence and you're like, that person must be right. It's a very like monkey brain yeah. type thing, but def- it was definitely part of the appeal. Um, so yeah, I came, I came to politics through a bunch of different angles. I started getting obsessed with it all at the same point, and then it was off to the races, and I never stopped. Um, I want to ask you a little bit of a tangent, because I'm interested in it. So you're really into golf. Mm-hmm. Um, I really can't wrap my head around that at all. The times that I've been, like, that I've even picked up a club, I have ended, like, in tears. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I find it very frustrating to do something that you can't just, like, try harder at in the moment, like, exert more effort and do better at. Mm-hmm. So I find it completely maddening. What is it that you love about it? That's a great question. Well, first, let me just, uh, you know, for all the people who are inevitably like, fuck you, Kyle, for even liking golf. Let me just say that <laughs> it's a totally a misnomer at this point that it's only like a rich sport. Uh-huh. There's a lot. Of, there's public courses all over the United States of America. There's working people play a lot. So it's not just I'm just defending golf overall okay. first before we get <laughs> okay. into it. Um, now, in terms of what I get out of it, I do think that the reason 
why I started was because my dad got me into it when I was younger. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived right next to a driving range and he would take me over there and I hit shots with him and stuff. And at the time, I probably didn't really appreciate it or really think like this is something I love and enjoy. Mm -hmm. But then as you get older, you know, you do it enough. And then at some point you're like, I kind of been enjoying this. And it, you know, it becomes a getaway. You go there, you hit shots, you clear your head and all that. Um, In terms of why I love it now, it's the ultimate self-test. It's you versus you. Mm. You have no, in other sports, a lot of other sports, you have other people on your team. You know, you're playing basketball, you could pass it to somebody else. Mm-hmm. When you play golf, it's you versus you. Mm. And it's not just the physical aspect of it, it's the mental aspect of it. For sure. Because especially when you're playing in like an event where it's a tournament, like you have to stay even and relaxed, even when you fuck up and you have to you know, maintain a certain level of, it sort of forces you to be in the moment and be in the zone if you care about it. Mm -hmm. And actually, that's one of, in my opinion, one of the things that makes me most happy is the more I can get into that zone, Mm. the feeling of the flow state, the happier I am in life, period. Right. And so, you know, when we were talking about you, you mentioned working out. Right. It probably provides a similar state for you. Right. Where you feel like you're totally, uh, you know, immersed in the moment. It shuts the brain off. Shuts the brain off Mm -hmm. and you're just acting. Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. to do something like that, have it matter because you have to put a score down. Right. You know, you know, play against other people, predominantly playing against yourself. It's just it's the ultimate thing to try to, you know, to try to do self-improvement while also having fun and I love nature. I love being outside. And there's nothing I like more than having the sunshine on me for four or five hours. Yeah. And do you feel like you get in a similar state when you're doing your show? 100%. Yeah. I'm in it right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in it right now, Crystal. (laughs) That's going to kill the state. So, and do you think that that golf helps you be able to access that state more readily? It doesn't, it doesn't, um, it doesn't leak from that into other areas of life. Like I can hit that state through doing the different things, but they're very individual in how it works. You know what I mean? It's not like I'll go play golf. I'm in the flow state. And then when I come home and do something else, I'm still in the You're state. You're still in the state. No, it's, it's, it's gone. Oh, it's really? not, it's not like it makes it easier to tap into it. No. Oh, I, f- I actually do find that with working. Out. Really? Yeah. That's why okay. I work out pretty much every morning before mm-hmm. the show. And I notice a difference if I don't. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I do notice that, uh, you know, Overall, I feel a lot more relaxed and at peace when I play golf. But, you know, it's not like I can maintain the flow state throughout it all. It's just like it makes everything a little easier. Mm -hmm. But I'm still not in the flow state when I'm not doing it. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Okay, so back to the the life trajectory. Mm -hmm. So you start to get a little bit into politics. You're dabbling in a little 9-11 trutherism, a little Bill Maher. A little little (laughs) 9-11 truther here, there, you know, is what it is. (laughs) Um, What was the college experience like for you? Um, The college experience, you know, funny enough, I'm one of the few people who can say that my college experience is exactly like, you know, what my life is like now versus what it was like when I was younger because I did not want to go away. I had a lot of friends who couldn't wait to get out of the house and mm-hmm. go pretend to be an adult. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know myself and I know what I don't know. And I'm like, I'm not fucking ready to do that shit. Are you kidding me? Plus, I had a degree of my mom and my dad had separated. I was living with my mom. And there was a degree of autonomy that I was granted mm-hmm. where I never felt like somebody was, you know, constantly breathing down my neck. You weren't being oppressed. Yeah, exactly. Like I basically was living in like what effectively was my own apartment in the basement. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not paying rent. So you can't beat that, right? So I wanted to 
you know, go to college and stay at home. And so I did that. And that was all part and parcel of like, I, you know, I, of course there was times where I did the partying thing, but it was never the biggest, like I always said, I feel more alive. I feel more at home. I feel more happy when I'm by myself reading some shit online, mm-hmm. you know, at night. And I mm-hmm. got the TV on in the background with whatever show I enjoy, mm-hmm. you know? What's the TV on usually? What's the, what channel is the yeah, TV on? Yeah. Come on. What kind of a question is that? You know the answer. We just talked about it. <laughs> golf. Yeah, it's mostly golf. But also what I do is I have NBA League Pass and like I'll always watch all the NBA games, you know, even on the days where it's like shitty fucking like Sacramento Kings versus whoever I, I usually still watch. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So you graduate college mm-hmm. and then what happens? So I graduate college. That was in 2010. And by that time, I had already started dabbling as a hobby in political commentary. On YouTube? Yes. Like, I started 2008 is when the YouTube channel Secular Talk was launched. So, like, the first video that I, that was recommended to me recently. It was recommended recently? YouTube still recommends your very first video. I was like, let me check this out. That was in 2008. That was in 2008. And and the name Secular Talk, that's when you were really into, like, the the atheist stuff. Yes. Well, I would never say I was more into that than politics, but that was at a time when it was probably 50-50. Yeah. And I just liked the name of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you graduate college, you're dabbling in the political commentary, mm-hmm. but you're working Hobby. a re- regular job. Well, yeah. I mean, I worked a million jobs when I was younger, you know, regular summer jobs, kid jobs, stuff like that. But when I graduated school in 2010, I was like, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? Because you have to remember, that's the height of the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. Right. And the unemployment rate was... And you majored in political science, though, And right? I majored in political science, which, yeah. by the way, is a degree you can't really do much with anyway. Most people who get a political science degree end up going to law, law school, school and getting a law mm-hmm. degree. Mm-hmm. I never... That was never in the cards for me. I didn't want to do that. Right. So I have this degree, pretty much useless, right, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. And I sit around for... Gosh, it wasn't even that long. It was probably like a month after I graduated. And I was like, I guess I got to get a regular job. And I went and I sold cars. And I was there from 2010 until, like, 2012, probably, like, early 2012. Were you good at it? Um, So, no. (laughs) No, I wasn't. But if you talk to one of my coworkers, his name's Alfredo. Uh He's the coolest guy in the world. He will tell you that I could have been the best salesman ever. Yeah. And the reason why I wasn't is because I just didn't give a fuck. Right. Right? I was, at the time, I was still living in my mom's basement not paying any rent, there was really no incentive yeah. to do anything. So I, the thing is, and everybody will not be surprised to hear this part, I'm the most truthful person on the planet. So I, I never put a hard sell on you. You want it, you want it. <laughs> Let's go talk some numbers. I'll, I'll give it to you for exactly, you know, a little bit above cost because I can't give it away for free, but I'll, I'll make minimum commission on it. Right. I'll do the best I can for you. Right. It, like, and I don't care. I'm not going to sit here and haggle. You know, I don't care. So I would. I was way too honest. And the other thing is I was a little bit notorious for, like, sometimes people would walk in and there would be other salesmen available. And I'd be like, I'd dip out. <laughs> Most of the time, people do the opposite. The salesmen are like, like I got to make some am. money. Let me go talk to yeah. him. I'm like... <laughs> You're like, and then Johnny's the, a great salesman. <laughs> Go ahead, Johnny. <laughs> and then the other part of, you know, my story at the time is that, and I wouldn't have known this at the time if you talked to me then, but yeah, I was definitely miserable and feeling like very, very nihilistic mm. and like, really, this is it? This is what I'm supposed to this do? Because I had that in my mind. Mm-hmm. I had in my mind, like, I'm going to be doing this forever. Yeah. Because I couldn't, I couldn't even conceive of what else I would do. It was just like, this is my job. This is what it is. I guess it's going to be like this. 
And, and is, this, is this the era of a lot of pills and also a lot of very entertaining tweets? Yes. <laughs> but I don't want to be Weasley and, and make it seem like, you know, I'm blaming that stuff for the tweets, you know? Mm. Like, I take ownership, I take responsibility, that's why I keep it up. Yeah. You know? I, I, I'm never going to pull them down. Did you, They're there. Did you consider taking them down ever? Not really. I mean, there was a moment where it was like any sane person would pull them down. But in my mind, I'm like, that's Weasley bullshit. Yeah. It's Weasley bullshit. Have you been res- have you been surprised the way that people respond? Because the way that this, like, somebody was trying to, like, get you with these things, right? By the way, you know who originally did it? Hmm. Mike Cernovich. Really? It started with a right-wing smear campaign. Yeah. And, and it actually was tied to Justice Democrats, because this uh, is how they got jank, where they pulled up his old blogs. And he had deleted his blogs. And they pulled it up in, like, the Wayback Machine or some shit. And then eventually they got around to me. Now, by the way, thankfully, I had already stepped down by that point. So they do a smear campaign. I'm like, there's nobody to fire me, bitch. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm already what am I going to fire myself? Is that what I'm going to do? And so anyway, I struck back when he came after me. And I was like, you're the, you're the guys who say, like, you know, political correctness has gone too far and we're against the snowflakes. And then you're being the ultimate fucking snowflake. Right. Yeah, I said it, bitch. Who cares? Right. Get over exactly. yourself. Exactly. You know? Like a decade ago and none of it was like that, you know, out of control. It's, but it's really funny, though, to me, the response, because people actually, it, it made a lot of people feel more... Favorable uh, listen, to it. It was like very endearing in a way. Yes, but I will say this. You you and I have had this conversation yeah. off air before that I don't, I'm not a fucking hero. I'm not a hero. You don't have to pat me on the back and say like, you know, way to go. It's just, I, I look at it and I'm just like, it is what it is. I said it. That's the end of it. Yeah. You know? And are there some things that I look at and I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah. Like I had this conversation with Glenn Greenwald where... He, when he learned that account exists, he's like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And then I told him, <laughs> I was totally like, I can't, <laughs> I can't bring myself to look at him. Yeah. And he's like, don't. Good call. Yes. Yeah. No, it's hard. I mean, even like things that aren't problematic, it's just hard to look back at yourself of 10 years ago. I have the same thing. Like if I watch some of my MSNBC segments, I'd be like, oh my God, I can't believe that I thought and felt that way, et cetera. Yeah. 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 No, I um, totally own them, you know. Some of the stuff I still would say. <laughs> I guess that is the difference. Some of the stuff I totally stick by, but some of it I don't. But yeah, I'm, they'll be up forever. So if I ever run for anything, which I don't plan on doing it, but everybody could feel free to shiv me in the side immediately. But, you know, like you were alluding to, there is a little bit of like a Trump effect here. Yeah. Where it's like, because you're so like, yeah, bitch, what's up? People are like, damn, I can't even talk about that now because he just said, what's up? You know, it's kind of funny because I didn't actually put this together, but um, that experience and like my experience with the photos were same thing. I was like, that's right. This yes. is bullshit. And people and it actually people, made people like, yeah, that yeah, is bullshit. Yeah, bullshit yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's funny. It's it actually is a much better response than to Paul. Like, let me take him down. Let me try to hide. From let, me let, me, weasley, right. let me be weaselly. Let me be weaselly. That people have a very negative response Mm -hmm, to. mm -hmm. And so at the time when you're at the car dealership, um, dabbling in secular talk, sending out some, putting out some amazing content, (laughs) um, is this the time when your dad gets sick? Yes. So my dad passed away in 2011. That was when I was at the dealership. Yeah. It probably, you know, probably made it a little more difficult because I felt like I had nothing else going on in my life anyway. Yeah. You know, so yeah, that was rough. That was rough. And it did feel like, I again, I didn't piece it together at the time. But way past it, you think back and you, you realize, like, wait, if he actually could go to a doctor and didn't have to worry about paying out of pocket, he might have gone to an actual doctor because he was going to a chiropractor to save money because it's cheaper because he had back pain. And they would 
crack his back and say, hey, keep coming back. We'll get we'll get that out for you. You know, you'll feel better soon. And so he kept going back, but the pain was a tumor. Yeah. And so by the time he went to the emergency room, it was already stage four. They tried to do surgery, but it had metastasized to, it was, it was everywhere. And so they just couldn't, they couldn't do anything. And then, you know, within two weeks, he was gone. It was very wow. quick from when he was in the hospital. Yeah. So from the time that you knew he was sick till he was gone, it was... Very quick. Months, maybe less. Wow. From the day he went into the emergency room, they basically had to do surgery immediately. As wow. soon as they did, you know, they looked at the scans, they were like, fucking cancer's everywhere. His spine hurt because there was a fucking tumor that was on his spine. God. And it started in his lungs because he was a smoker. Mm-hmm. You know, that gets to the other part of the conversation that like, yeah, listen, am I absolving all responsibility from him? No. You know, of course not. Um, and it's also possible he wouldn't have gone to a doctor, even if he had the ability to go to a doctor, because he did have a streak of anti-science in him. Mm. So he might have been one of those people, typical like old macho man of like... I know better than the doctors, bro. Could have reacted like that. I just yeah. want to be totally honest with everybody. Right, right. But there's a chance that not. There's a chance that he would have gone because he wouldn't have had to pay. And so you if think if we had Medicare for all, you think your politics might be different if you hadn't had that experience. Um, and that loss. I, you know, I don't, I don't know, Crystal. It's easy to be like yes because it fits the story well. Yeah. Um, but hard to say. I, I may have ended up in the same place through different means because you know. I do feel like a lot of my politics, in a funny way, in the same way that we discussed how yours stemmed from disgust looking at what it was mm. like in these mm. dilapidated places, yeah. I think so, a lot of my politics comes from um, an obsession with orderliness hmm. and and perfectionism. Really? Yes, because I look around and I think the way that we've organized society is the dumbest fucking <laughs> shit I've ever seen in my life. And it bothers me that, not, that everybody doesn't realize that and we're not like immediately on fixing it right this second. Right. You know, like the fact that we have 45,000 to 60,000 people dying every year because they don't have access to basic health care. And for no reason other than we've just decided that that's okay. Yes. It's the system that we grandfathered in from a previous era of shittiness when every other developed country, everybody has health care and they pay less and they get better outcomes. I look at that and it's really like the perfectionism and the orderliness that's like, you motherfuckers can't fix this shit? Even I can see what's wrong with this. Because that's the other thing. I don't think I'm particularly smart. I don't. I think I'm pretty much a regular dude. And so I look at this and I go, if I could fucking see the problem with this, there's people way smarter than me in positions of power and they're not doing dick about this. And that's where, you know, it makes sense that I look for a platform to like voice that opinion and yeah. scream it. Well, endlessly. I, I would disagree. I think you're very intelligent. Well, that's very nice but it you. is true that like the, the answers are not actually complicated. Right. It doesn't actually point. take that's a really point. smart pe- yes. person to know like this thing that we're doing is really fucking stupid. So you end up leaving the car dealership. Mm-hmm. You left or were fired? So it's actually a very interesting story, and I should thank this person now. Yeah. But what happened is we had this manager there. I won't say their name, okay? okay. <laughs> but um, you have to go get numbers when you're with a, a customer. Mm-hmm. And so they crunch the numbers for you and tell you what it would be for a monthly payment, for 36-month lease, 42-month lease, whatever it is, or if you're purchasing it. Mm-hmm. And so I was with a customer, and the person wanted numbers. They were kind of like in a rush, and they were letting me know, like, I got to, like, come on, hurry up. And so I went to go get numbers, and she had me waiting for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever it was. And yeah. looked like While she the wasn't. customer's just sitting there. I said it was a she. I fucked up. I was going to say, I, I said they before. <laughs> now I'm saying she. It's a she. Anyway, um, so she was just sort of lollygagging, and I kind of snapped a little bit. And I was like, this person's been waiting, and they let me know they need to, you know, leave they have now. They to do. Yeah. Yeah. So come on. And that, you know, she got defensive and angry and started yelling at me. I'm like, I'm a grown ass man. Don't fucking raise your voice at me. I'm a grown man, you know? 
and they sent me home for the day. <laughs> and basically what happened is when I went home, I was like, I'm not a child. This isn't school. You're not going to send me home for the day. And th- what happened is the next day they said, you can come back. You're not fired. Anything. You just have to apologize. And I said, blow me. <laughs> and that's what happened. Now I should thank her. Because that it was that, that was the catalyst. S- sequence of events. It was the catalyst. Because what happened was, it was pretty much instantaneous. I think within, definitely within like two weeks, but maybe even within a week of leaving, I was like, you know, what if I just did my hobby every day? Mm. What if I just got up every day, did five shows a week, two-hour shows at the time? The amount I was putting out was beyond preposterous. Yeah. It even rivals Rising, which I know you guys put out the most insane <laughs> yeah, amount of content. Yeah, but we have help. You were doing it all on your own. That's exactly right. I did have, shout out to Lilith, and there were a few people who were helping me here yeah. and there. But yes, I was working like 80 hours a week. It was ridiculous. But I didn't think of it as work because it's my hobby. And I said, I'm going to do this all the time. And I was just hoping that some pieces would fall into place. And then what happened was after a while, you get to like a thousand subs or something, you can get an AdSense account on Google. Right. I was able to get that. Then eventually TYT reached out to me. We see your stuff. We like your stuff. Would you like to be part of the network? What year was that? I want to say 2013 okay. or 2014. Okay. So I started doing it full time, like in 2012 sometime. Okay. And by 2013 or 14, I was part of their network. Gotcha. And then from then it was just, it was rocket ship from there on where it was like, I went from getting, you know, less than a thousand views per video to almost instantaneously getting thousands. And then it, it was just a steady rise to where I am now. Was there, a, was that the moment when you knew like, I'm going to, I'm going to make it or no. was there another moment? The moment I knew, funny enough, it was, it actually wasn't the money part that made me think like, I'm going to make it. And all I really want to do is pay the bills. Like, let me just pay the bills and be okay. And I'll be happy. You know, uh, the real moment, the only moment to this day that I was really like, I'm going to be okay. And I made it. The only moment was a hundred thousand subscribers because in the back of my mind, I had this idea of like a lifetime goal of a hundred thousand subscribers Yeah, where I was like, that's the number six figures or it's not six figures, six digits, whatever the fuck. Right. Numbers. (laughs) Six something. Six of the things. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, that was, I had that moment where I was like. Oh, I'm actually at a point thing already. And I'm at a point where it's like possible if I'm out in the middle of the day in a busy, uh, in a busy city, somebody will be like, that's the guy. That's the moment where I was like, oh, I'm going to be, I'm going to be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. That 100K number was really important for Sagar and I too. Interesting because, uh, and you tell me how you feel about this. I'm not even going to react like that to a million. Yeah. You know what I mean? hundred was the biggest thing. hundred was way bigger than a million. I'll be like, okay, it's just. I mean, okay. it was exciting to hit a million, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't right, know, Crystal. <laughs> you're right there. You're right there. As you know, we get like way nicer algorithm treatment than you do. It's wildly unfair. But um, so you hit 100K, you know, you're going to do this thing. And then how have your politics evolved from the beginning of Secular Talk to now or have they? That's a really good question. Um no, I, you know, I think what happened was when I started, there is this framework, which is actually the same thing that you discussed, which is, yes, you go into it with this mindset of the general rule is Democrats good, Republicans bad. And then you sort of pick stories with that in mind, mm-hmm. you know, and those are the things that you talk about. Those are the things that you stress. Yeah. And, you know, what I, what I learned very quickly, it's like still even back during the Obama era is like, oh, 
that's not really true. Right. And I was confident enough to tell everybody what I felt every step of the way. And so when it morphed from Democrat good, Republican bad to like Republican really bad, Democrat bad, you know, <laughs> I was confident enough to let that be known and voice that. Yeah. And um, all what you've seen over time is me never changing that original formula and just staying true to all I could promise the people is I'm going to be totally honest with them. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the only thing I have. I'm not special. I'm not extra intelligent. It's I swear to you, I'm going to tell you whatever I'm actually thinking, even if that thing might make you go, fuck this guy. And have you had things where you did have a significant part of your audience be like, fuck this guy? Hmm. Yeah, I do feel like this one's a more broad answer. I could probably, there's probably better specific examples. But just the fact that I kind of stick to my guns and say, like, I'm kind of a social democrat. Because most of my audience is to the left of me. Mm. You know, most of my audience is socialist or something else, mm. you know? And so when I, I'm a Scandinavian bro, when I suck off the Nordic systems, <laughs> people are like, uh, here we go with like what they view as me being too centrist. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and but so just that positioning overall, you feel like that's is That's one example. Yeah. And honestly, I can't think of any others right now, but it does happen all the time where uh, as I say something, I'm like, well, I'm going to like this one. And then usually I'm right. But, you know, it's also thin skin stuff because if, oh, they're not going to like this one. What does that mean? 80% likes on the video versus 98% right. likes, right. you know, that's just the thin skin talking. But right. yeah, there are plenty of issues like that. And then there are issues where I've gone back and forth over time. I think the gun issue is one where I've gone back and forth. I definitely I prioritize, too. you too? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I definitely prioritize way more now economic stuff than I used to. Mm. I used to be a pretty even split of like social Culture issues versus issues. yes yeah. versus economic issues. That's interesting. Where do you think do you have like a explanation for why you've shifted on that? Um I care more about certain issues. You've just become more clear in your mind that these are the things I care about more. Yeah. And also the things that I, I focus on and care about the most I think are the most unifying things. You know, I do think that the issues that I talk the most about, whether it be healthcare or wages or whatever it might be these are areas where you can sort of get people who in other ways vehemently disagree with you on the right to be like, I kind of like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. then also, I'm big on this, and, and I don't know whether you realize this or not about yourself, but this also happens with you. The thing I'm most proud of with my show is the pipeline out of the right wing. Yes. That I've had a million people come up to me and tell me I was a Steven Crowder fan and now I'm not because right. of you. I was a Ben Shapiro fan and now I'm not because of you. Sometimes it goes far as saying I was going down the alt-right pipeline, mm -hmm. which is even worse. Mm -hmm. And now I'm not because of you. That's the stuff that makes me really, really fucking happy. Um, and a lot of it is, funny enough, one of the main things that we get attacked for is one of the main reasons why we've been able to provide that pipeline out of the right wing. Mm. Because, for example, somebody might see a video where I talk about something Tucker said, where Tucker nominally says some anti-war shit, right? Right. I'm like, yeah, fair enough, good point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, in other ways, no, I don't like Tucker at all. Right. Bad, wrong, evil, terrible, every right. negative word you want to say. But on this one very narrow point, yeah, you're right. And guess what? Somebody hears that and they're a Tucker fanboy. Like, interesting. Maybe let me hear what else Kyle has to say. Yeah. And then when they see me disagreeing with him, they know it comes from a place of being sincere and genuine. Because you gave him credit when it was appropriate. That's right. That's all. Listen, that an honest person gives credit where it's due. Yeah. You know? And... I always say, where, where you agree, agree. Where you disagree, disagree. 
But you just have to be clear about what those things are. And sometimes, unfortunately, you and I have both been attacked for it. If you say, let's agree where we agree, people are like, but they're bad on other things. Yeah. But we're not talking about other things. <laughs> when we talk about that, I agree with you. Right. You know? Right. And that's not to say that there aren't some people who may be just like totally beyond the pale. But, but we have to be honest about who is and isn't beyond the pale. Yes. Because it, the number of people who are seriously too far gone is a lot smaller than people think. I agree with yes. that. And I also just think that if you have someone who, whether we like it or not, has a lot of power and following and, you know, mainstream acceptability in the first place, I think you kind of have to engage with them because, like, you're not platforming them. They already have their own yes. damn platform. So it's f f silly to be like, oh, if I ignore them, then that's going to make a difference. And you and Saga ran into this issue relatively recently when it was on the, the Trump threatening to invoke the Insurrection Act and, mm. and deploy the troops because of the BLM yeah. protests and riots. Yes. And you said to me at the time, you were like, listen, do I think his view is beyond the pale here? Yeah, I do. But you know what? When you look at the polling data, he's got a majority of the country on his side right now. Yeah. So we have to engage with this view. And that point landed with me. Because I was like, damn, she's right. If like 60% of the country is agreeing with Sagar, how could we get on our high horse and be like, I'm not even going to engage on this point. Right. Even or though even, we both agree it should be beyond the pale. Right. But it's not. Or even 40%. You know, right. even, like if you have a significant chunk of the country who believes this thing, then you have to at least be able to debate and engage with it without just being like, no, you're evil, wrong. I can't even talk to you anymore. I just don't. Look, I, I think both of us, and I think this is part of the reason why you and I get along so well, is that that we have this view of like, no, we actually need to add people to this coalition. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we have in our mind rather than where's the, you know, perfect place to stand and how do I find the group that's like already got the perfect views? It's like, okay, who could, who is plausible that we could bring in and how might we approach them where they would find some of what we have to say worthwhile? Right. That's exactly right. So let me ask you the last two questions I'll ask you are the same ones that I, you asked me, which is number one, what's the future for Kyle Kalinske? The future for Kyle Kalinske is Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh-huh. And the future for Kyle Kalinske is continuing to do secular talk. It's such a beautiful answer when you can say, actually, what I'm doing right now is exactly what I want to do. And I feel the same way. It's all I ever could have asked for, ever. You know, to actually enjoy the day-to-day -day and feel like it matters. That's all anybody could ask for. You know, you've hit the jackpot, if that's the case. And, I, okay, I probably shouldn't tell the story, but I'm going to tell the story. Okay. Um... Somebody asked me, I won't say who. Okay. Somebody asked me, what would it take for a big network reaching out to you to bring you on? Mm. What's your number? Where you would say, yeah, I'll go work for Vice or Vox or whoever. Yeah. You know, fill in the blank with whatever company you want. MSNBC. Oh, my God. Whoever. Imagine. <laughs> you would get fired in a week. <laughs> you remember? I told you what my answer was to this. You remember what I said? Not exactly. There isn't a number. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Because I value not having a boss that much. And I value my connection with the audience where you guys know there's no filter and I'm telling you exactly what I think. I value that so much that there literally isn't a number you could say. Yeah. They could say $10 million. I'd say, guess I'm missing out on $10 million. You know? So there are certain things that you can't buy. Like you can't buy happiness. You can't buy waking up every day and loving what you're doing. You can't buy the freedom and independence of not having somebody tell you what to do. Mm. You just can't buy that. Yeah. You know? And so if it means I roll the dice and I make less, okay, so be it. And by the way, our audience has been phenomenally 
great to us. Yes. You know, subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Everybody listening to this right now. $5 a month on Substack for the video, or you can listen to the audio for free. But anyway, I think they take our point. It's that if, if you if you live your values in a way, not to sound, you know, cheesy, but yeah. it's respected. That independence is in in what we do is literally everything. Yes. Like, I mean, that's why people gravitate towards you so much is because they know. There's no other thing that you're yeah. considered, no influence, no boss, nobody's saying you can't go there, you can't cover this, or you can't say that. It's just totally, you know, your best attempt, to, and look, we both are going to get it wrong some, sometimes, Yes. but your best attempt to interpret what is going on and the implications of that. So, if slash when you run for president, what are your top three? So, I, I'm going to say Medicare for all, obviously, mm-hmm. that's up there for sure. Single payer, like I'm going full, you know, yeah, not, not public funding of private institutions, public funding of public institutions. Mm -hmm. I want to nationalize the whole fucking thing. Okay. I do also want to say UBI, but I'm going to leave that off and I'm going to say that's my number four uh, issue. Okay. Um, so one is Medicare for all. And then I go, I go a little different. Okay. This is different, but this is actually what I would do if I was running for president. I would, I would run on something called the American deal. Okay. It's basically like a new New Deal. And the idea would be, let's create not just a better infrastructure, not just an upgraded infrastructure. I want the number one infrastructure in the world by far, and it's not even close. I want it to be A++. I want other countries to look at it and say, holy fucking wow. shit, look at what they just did. Yeah. Okay. So it's sort of like a mix of a new New Deal and a green New Deal, and you put it together. And the most important aspect of it is beautiful infrastructure everywhere but also very good high-paying jobs, sort of, you know, like a new FDR-type approach. And the reason why I I prioritize this one so highly is because it's genuinely unifying. This is where you get people on the right and people on the left. This is an 80% issue. That they're like, I love it. Yes. Now, of course, it gets smeared a thousand ways, but if you have an effective communicator who's laying it out, then it doesn't matter that they smear it. We're Mm going to win on it in the same way they tried to smear JFK, and he ended up winning four times. Okay, so that's one thing. And the other thing is... And it took me a while to get to this place, but I'm happy that I'm here now because I would have said like corruption related previously, mm. you know, get money out of politics, something to that effect, yeah. which I still value oh, deeply, of absolutely. course. Absolutely, yeah. But there's a shortcut that actually could work to go around the corruption. Okay. It would be a national de- direct democracy law where every time you go vote in a presidential election, you vote on like the top five issues. So imagine next time you go vote for president, it's like, okay, who do you want for president? And then it's also, should we legalize marijuana nationwide? Should we raise the minimum wage to a living wage? Should we get out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Because I have so much faith in my fellow Americans on the right and the left that I guarantee you at least 80% of the time, they're going to be on the better side of the issue. And that's a way to circumvent the corruption in D.C. Because the reason we're in Iraq, the reason we're in Afghanistan, has a lot to do with the military-industrial complex, has a lot to do with the perverse incentive structure and the money. You know, the reason why we're not raising the minimum wage to a living wage is because of the effect of corporations on Mm -hmm. the system. Mm -hmm. What if we just go right around them? Donald Trump won Florida, but they raised the minimum wage in a direct ballot. Right. 60% of them. What does that tell you? It tells you when you go by the issues, there's a lot more unification in this country than people realize. Yes. So my idea would be, Let's actually find a way to get that implemented. And I think that would make a giant difference in our country. There was a study, I'm sure you saw it, this was a few years ago, but where they researched the impact of regular people on the political process. Like, are legislators actually shaped by what public the public mm-hmm. wants? And they found no. Like, not yep. 
at all. And so, but when you talk about people who are wealthy, well-connected, then there was a significant effect. So when you look at our politics and you're like, if you put it to a vote of the American people, they would want a bigger stimulus bill. If you put it to a vote, they would want $15 minimum wage. If you put it to want to, you know, to the American people, they would legalize marijuana. All of these things are like, why isn't that happening? So I really like that idea because it cuts right around that. And then, you know, some of the things that we worry about in terms of like just the society kind of falling apart, if you can actually have that sense of, oh, I, I actually have a channel for voicing the things that I want. And it's, look, I'm not always going to get my way, but I actually at least feel like I have a voice here, like I have some influence and I have a legitimate channel through which I can voice my grievances. That starts to rebuild a, a trust in the society where people don't feel like they have to resort to political violence and these, you know, are less susceptible to radicalization, all of those things. I like that idea a lot. Yeah. I mean, I trust regular schmegular average joe conservative uncle and you know leftist mm-hmm. auntie i trust them more than i trust any of the politicians with a handful of exceptions yeah. right but mm-hmm. more than 90% of the politicians because at least i know these people are not taking a colossal amount of money from special interests and lobbyists and donors and then they have to pay back those people and perpetuate a terrible system. Yeah. So at least I know I'm going to get their real opinion. And again, when you go by the actual issues, people agree a lot more than you think they do. Yes. They just agree. So we, if, if we could find a way, just like I described, to actually get the will of the people implemented... I mean, it would be it would be everything. Yeah. I think I think the U.S. would become a social democracy very quickly. See that if you goes, do that, and that goes back to the like the two paths: police state, yes, or more democracy. That's right. And what you're saying is, you know, we have to have more democracy, or else we're going to end up in a very ugly place. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, well, this was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, I really hope Andrew feels better. Um, yeah, same. Yeah, and I I think you know I think he just he wore himself out last night with a yeah. number of events. Listen, so. not even not even point one percent angry at him. Oh. I mean, no. you know, if there was ever a, a reason to miss anything, uh, hey, I have COVID. Is yeah. quite literally of course, the, we're like, yes. you know, we probably can. Come on, it. man. We, we, right. And we probably know how to talk amongst ourselves. We can probably figure this thing out. But next week, um, we are planning on having Lee Carter on, mm-hmm. who is a socialist candidate for governor in my home state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really excited to talk to him about how the campaign is going and some of his views and sort of political philosophy, because I think it's pretty unique. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think that's going to be a lot of fun and allow me to do one more shameless pitch for our uh, lovely thing that we have going on here. Um, Of course, you can listen to the audio for free. It drops on Saturday on every single podcast uh, platform. But What you should do to get it as soon as it drops is just subscribe for free on Substack. And then you'll know the second the audio drops because it'll be emailed directly to you. And if you want to watch the video and you want to watch it on Friday, get a day early. you go to Substack, you subscribe. It's a $5 tip per month, and then that gives you access to the video. It's the the paying people get the video, but everybody gets the audio. So whichever path you prefer, young Kimosabi, please <laughs> be our guest. But um, this was fun. I really did enjoy this. I enjoyed it. I learned things about I, I thought I knew a decent amount about you, but I actually learned a few things that I didn't know before. So. I learned a lot about you as well. All right, guys. Thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see you next week. 